Sorry it's taken a bit to get started. Just waiting on Mansfield. No problem. Everything going okay? I'm fine. Mansfield, on the other hand, has been going through some rough shit lately. What's up, shitters? Y'all ready to get this shit train rolling? Mansfield, are you recording in your car right now? Yeah, I just find it easier to get the old creative juices flowing when I'm hanging out in Kamala. <laughs> you you named your car Kamala? Look, there's not enough names that uh, rhyme with Impala, uh, so how about you just shut your shithole, you shitter? Jeez, what's your problem? Problem? I ain't got no problem. No problems at all when I'm hanging out with Kamala. She's the most generic car in the country. Gets average gas mileage and smells like old french fries when it's hot outside. That's just about the finest smell in the world. Except maybe for a put. Okay, enough of that. Let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by movie monster boy Aaron, my co-host, and me, the coward, Derek. In which vroom, vroom. <laughs> vroom, motherfuckers, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Uh, our guest today needs no introduction. She's been on a couple past episodes. Host Shelby Scott of the great Scary to Sleep podcast, which you can find at scarytosleep.com, at scary to sleep on twitter shelby is at shelby b scott on twitter you are now under the bloody disgusting banner congratulations for that i am thank you that was like tentative last time we spoke and i don't think i announced it because it was like i don't know if i can say anything yet or i might have said something without having permission whichever but yeah i'm with bloody (laughs) disgusting and it's fucking awesome they're amazing yeah that's awesome (laughs) that's that's really cool yeah so congratulations on the news because you've been with them for a couple weeks now i think since you last came on our show yes i have listeners if you want to listen to one of the best if not the best horror fiction podcast out there listen to scary to sleep it's great shit uh in fact you've had plenty of people write in including vp morris who's been on a couple of our past episodes so vp morris who vp if you're out there listening i recognized your name and i was just telling (laughs) i was like i know this name from somewhere it has to be a book i read or something is someone it's an author i know and it turns out because we've been on the same show a bunch of times who knew (laughs) yeah well now we'll have to get y'all both at the same time for an episode but in the meantime uh let's move on to our horror recommendation section before we move on we gotta throw out there this is our first episode in the season of spoop and uh yeah well, our brains are not quite there because we're recording this early but uh yeah this is gonna be <laughs> our first episode for the halloween season season baby and yep. uh just as a tease the theme is cursed objects this year so we've got three super fun movies coming at you that are all revolving around evil entities encased in i can't think of another word objects devices things <laughs> tied to encased yes thesaurus.com <laughs> yeah and they are three widely diverse objects from each other and the first one of course is an evil car but we'll get to that later vroom, vroom. yeah so but with that we'll move on to our horror recommendations section for anyone who's listening nice plus episodes later for the first time and for our returning listeners this is part of the podcast in which we uh, recommend to each other other horror media that we've consumed lately be it other movies tvs books video games etc guest always goes first like usual so shelby have you been getting into any horror lately yes i have two recommendations one old and one new but nothing nice. borrowed or nothing blue sorry <laughs> I, so <laughs> the old one is i'll get that one out of the way first i just revisited 
did. Someone brought it up recently on like Twitter or something. And I was like, it's been quite a while since I read that. And it was so fantastic is Pen Pal, the book. Pen Pal. Have you guys read Pen Pal? I have heard of it, but Mm -hmm. I have not read it. I have not. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. You guys got to read Pen Pal. So it was years ago. It started as the author was releasing it in little increments on what website was it? Oh, my God. I can't even remember now. It's been so long. I apologize to people, someone who's screaming at their phone right now. It's like, it was this (laughs) fucking website. How do you not remember that? But I remember reading it back then in the increments and I got the book. It was one of the first ones I remember purchasing that was self-published on Amazon. And that was kind of like different. Like, oh, my God, as authors can just go publish a book now. You don't have to like go through anyone. Yeah, It's one of the best, most brutal get under your skin endings I've ever read ever, which is why I like to revisit it every few years. It's a very quick read. I was about to show you with my fingers, but no one can see me right now who's listening. (laughs) It's about this big. So just imagine not very big in a book. It's a very short book. Honestly, you can binge it in like a night if you're into it and you're wanting just to get in and get spooky. So that is my book recommendation. This makes something old. Fantastic. Again, both of you need to read it. Seriously. I can't believe you haven't read it. I I pulled it up while you were talking about it and it looks like Mm -hmm. it was originally posted on the subreddit No Sleep under the username of Thousand Vultures. I probably could have just guessed that and I was, yeah. Yeah, back in 2011. I remember because Reddit wasn't really a thing until around that time period anyway. Mm -hmm. So this is like one of the early, I guess, examples of something that was posted on No Sleep. I don't think I even got to Reddit and like started checking No Sleep until like 2012 or 2013. Yeah, I was an early subscriber to Reddit. I was like an early nerd, especially (laughs) because of No Sleep. I can just consume unedited horror and some of it I mean you know some of the older no sleep stories are just so fucking good I mean they've been adapted time and time again even now yeah one of my favorite I think it's called Booth World Industries that was a Mm. a, like a famous one on no sleep where like someone actually put out a real phone number and if you (sighs) called the phone number like it fucked with you basically and would even I actually never called the number myself but I want to say they had it wired to where it would call you back (gasps) Booth World Industries was like (sighs) this hitman hiring okay. service but then like <laughs> sure, they yeah. would come after you as like part of the payment cool, yeah. it, it was a really cool story that someone put out like a couple posts about and they did like a multi-parter so yeah yeah early no sleep because of the strict rules at the time which I have a few stories that are written in a way I wouldn't necessarily right now because their rules were so strict like it had to sound real if it was too out there they wouldn't accept it they would delete your story Yeah, it had to sound plausible so I think that's why some of those earlier ones by being put into that box if you could figure out that formula and pen pal ticks every box of that it's so plausible which makes it so fucking terrifying and like oh yeah it's so good and the old no sleep was almost like an arg in itself because of the Mm. real feeling and people doing stuff like that like adding phone numbers and stuff yeah love it okay oh sorry my second one is the mortuary assistant yes yes the mortuary assistant this is the game that looks like autopsy of jane doe the video game yes basically (laughs) super fun yeah and i played the demo months ago and it was so good i love the monster thing that's in it i don't want to like give any spoilers but i mean everyone's playing it if you don't want to even want to buy it every youtuber has played all the way through and you can go watch it's fun to watch i've actually just watched it too and it's a great story and there are like six different endings fantastic one of the scariest games i'm always looking out for like really good ambiance you know which is what my whole show is i really feel like there's the rain it's just like the draw distance and stuff when you look out a window it just really puts you in there 
Like it really does. It's one of those games that honestly, I wish I could play in the dark with headphones on and really get the full effect, but I, I can't. Yeah. So. <laughs> so this isn't really spoiling anything because this is in their screenshots and everything. If you look up the Mortuary Assistant video game, one of the demonic entities that you encounter, think like this naked bald man who's completely yeah. like pale and then has sunken eye sockets and like a grin that's too big for a normal face. And like there's a screenshot of him perched on top of like a cabinet. Apparently like things will slowly start jump scaring you and weird yes. supernatural shit will happen. This all sounds pretty good. Yeah, that part when I played the demo, he wasn't part of the screenshot yet. I had no idea what this monster was. And like when he jump scares you, I mean, it was just so scary. It was terrifying. And you see him in like a flash. I almost wish they didn't use him on for the art. I get why, because it's such a scary image. But you see him in such a flash that it's like, what did I just see? Did I see that? Did I even yeah. actually see that? Am I just scaring myself right now? Yeah, but <laughs> a definitely a lot of, again, autopsy of Jane Doe vibes where it's kind of yeah. even a little bit of a slow burn. Because, yeah, you're trying to do your autopsy job. But at the same time, spooky shit's happening in a really spooky yeah. mortuary. It's a little bit <laughs> of a simulator where you're actually doing autopsy stuff like draining fluids and stuff and it is one of those games too that's one of my favorite types of horror games you start out in like the little office like entrance area and you look down this hallway and it's like you have to propel yourself because you look down this hallway and it's like every fiber of you is like don't go down the hallway just leave (laughs) if this was real life (laughs) I would just go home and not go down the hallway but you have to go down the hallway and it's so scary yeah Currently sitting at a 90% uh, out of 1,500 reviews on Mm. Steam, so very high Steam score and everything. It's a fucking scary looking ass game. Yeah. Very scary. It's a lot of fun too, especially I like simulator type stuff. So I actually really like housekeeping of having to actually do my job and everything. Because I saw some of the gameplay too. Isn't it too like not only are you doing your embalming tasks, but at the same time, you're also trying to like do occult rituals and banish yes. the demonic entities well, what? so they'll kill you. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. it's so funny because you find it in like a computer. So it's I don't want to like give away, but there's like a filing cabinet. And so, yeah, you're trying to do this occult stuff while you're just do to do. Let's get the old lady prepped for her funeral. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that, apparently there's also like an overarching story of a history of someone that's somehow tied to every single entity that's haunting you. And you kind of slowly piece it together. But yeah, it has some scenes that are real trippy too. you feel like you're on mushrooms a little bit. Huh. So yeah, it's got a little bit of something for everybody. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, really cool game. Thank you for that recommendation, too. Yeah. I heard y'all mention Steam. So I'm assuming this is a PC only game or is it available for like Switch, PlayStation? I think as of right now, it's only on PC, but they may like have announced that it's going to eventually come to consoles, too. Maybe that's what I am thinking of. Yeah. Okay. I'll keep an eye out for it for sure. Yeah. With that, Aaron, what recommendations do you have for us this week, bud? Uh, so I checked out a relatively new movie that came out last year called The Cursed. It is currently on Hulu. It is a weird remixed take on a werewolf story. I wasn't sure what to make of this necessarily because I remember seeing this at theaters this past fall. I was staying with my parents for work, trying to figure out something to do that evening. I looked up the nearby movie theater and I just saw this movie listed. And I was like, what is this? I've not heard of this. I've not seen a trailer. I've heard no one talk about it or mention it. What is this random horror movie that got dumped to theaters? And then it was yeah. gone like a week later. So I should have gone little by little, though. I've heard other people talking about it. Word of mouth is 
is definitely kind of starting to go around. So this is directed by Sean Ellis. He did Cashback, The Broken, Metro Manila, Anthropoid, which is like a World War II thriller with Killian Murphy and Jamie Dornan. So not necessarily a director that is super well-known and out there, but this movie's got... Alistair Petrie, he was in Rogue One fairly recently, and he's one of those that guy British actors you've seen in a ton of stuff. Kelly Riley, who was apparently on Yellowstone, favorite TV show of everybody's parents. <laughs> the boomer TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. <laughs> Boyd Holbrook, who was just in Logan and The Sandman, which I'm also going to talk about in just a second. I was like, I just heard his name in something recent. That's what it was, Sandman. Honestly, I didn't realize that this movie is set in France. Oh. I thought that this was set in England because... It feels British. It's all British character actors for the most part. Basically, a landowner and all of his other landowner friends, they get a curse put on them by a group of Romani who are camping in their area claiming the land. And of course, they're like, no, this is our land uh, and things go bad. And then let's just say pseudo werewolf stuff starts happening, but in very interesting, slightly different remixed kind of ways. Leaning more supernatural? Leaning more supernatural for sure, but like not exactly the same type of werewolves. Like it's even hard to say wolf. For sure, like oh. wolves, it's not quite lupine, but it kind hmm. of is. Like there, it's, it's an interesting, yeah, it's <laughs> it's kind of an interesting twist. But Boyd Holbrook does bring up the whole beast of Jevadon story, which is what mm. like Brotherhood yeah. of the Wolf, and there's been other werewolf movies that are based on that story. He was like there, and you know his wife and child were killed, and he's been tracking this curse as it makes its way across the countryside. Blah blah blah. It's pretty good. It's pretty atmospheric. Atmospheric. Awesome. The performances are solid. There's some interesting, creepy moments. There is a pretty good mix of practical effects. Like, there's some gnarly gore in this movie. And then, on the other hand, there is, okay, the CGI creature that doesn't always look the best. So it's kind of a weird mix in that sense, where there's a lot of good stuff, but then there's, you know, the occasional weird shot of a CGI kind of creature. But I think they do a good enough job of keeping it you know, slightly obscured and hidden where you're seeing it around corners and you're seeing it Mm -hmm. through trees where it's kind of people are not sure if they saw what they saw. I had a good time with it. It was very surprising. It's a movie that has really solid production value considering like it just got dumped into theaters with no marketing, with no anything. So like I mentioned, this is on Hulu. Damien, thanks for the heads up on that. Awesome. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. I'm sure it's probably going to be on some other streaming relatively soon, but that is The Cursed from 2021. Second movie I would bring up real quick. I mentioned Sandman a second ago, so I guess let me go there. Sandman's delightful. It's a lot of fun. Is it? Yeah. I haven't gotten to check it out yet. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet either. It is definitely more fantasy forward than it is horror forward, but it's Neil Gaiman. There's a lot of horror in it. Yeah. yeah. Was, There's a yeah. lot of like horror in Sandman. He always toes the line between fantasy and horror in such a beautiful way. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So definitely, yeah. definitely a solid adaptation. I really enjoyed a lot of the casting. The production's pretty good. It has that Netflix look that so much of their original stuff yeah. kind of has, but I think it still works fine. And at the end of the day, Neil Gaiman's very, very, very involved with the 
this adaptation. So mm. at least everything that they have is stuff that you know he's like signed off on. One of the first arcs in the comic heavily involves Arkham Asylum and a like B-list supervillain from DC named Dr. Midnight. That's right. Yeah. So this first season covers maybe the first 18 issues. Okay. The first story arc, like the first half of the season is essentially him escaping the prison that he had been held in and trying to get back right. all of his magical items, right? That's where Dr. Minnet comes in because he has his amulet. They must have redid it. It's been since I was in high school that I read those comics. That adaptation, I I assumed, had to make a lot of changes to remove a lot of the DC stuff from it. Uh, yeah. In some ways, though, because there's still like moments where you see like Justice League cartoons playing in the background on TV and oh. okay. a kid has Batman and Wonder Woman toys and action figures. Oh there is God. DC stuff okay. in there. Constantine shows up, and that's all I'll say. So oh. in some ways, it follows the comics pretty close. But like you said, I didn't put together the whole, oh yeah, Arkham Asylum and all that stuff. So some stuff is reworked. I need to go back and reread the yeah. comics because it's been since high school. There's a little funny minor bit with Scarecrow because Scarecrow has some interactions with Dr. Midnight in Arkham Asylum. That's pretty great. It's just one of those things. I really enjoy the Sandman comic, but I honestly like my favorite arc is like that first arc, like where he's getting all his magic items back and then meeting up with Dr. Midnight who stole his amulet. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and read the yeah. comics for sure. I mean, I, I enjoyed this show a lot. The casting is really solid. Just Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer is kind of one of the best things of the show. It's so ridiculous. But yeah, a lot of fun. I thought it was very well made. The horror stuff is pretty solid, so I enjoyed it. I've been hearing her portrayal of Lucifer is kind of up there with, God, what's his name uh, from Constantine? The, the Peter Stormare, yeah. Yeah, Peter Stormare, yeah. yeah. A lot of people oh. praise Peter Stormare's Lucifer as well. His is oh, definitely God. on the weird end of the spectrum. Hers is a little more yeah. on the classical side of the spectrum, but it's very good. Yeah. I saw that she basically told them, unless I get to play Lucifer, I don't want to be in the show, which is such a power yeah. move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And it works great. I think she was fantastic in the show. Awesome. So yeah, definitely worth checking out again. That's on Netflix. Um, everybody can check it out. They also drop a random, like, by the way, here's a bonus episode. I saw Twitter all a flutter about yeah. that the random episode. Yeah. And it's like a weird kind <laughs> of semi anthology two part thing. There's like an animated segment that's adapting oh. Dream of a Thousand Cats. And then there's the other half, which is the Calliope story. So it's clearly nice. setting some stuff up for oh. a season two. Well, and that makes sense because like oh, that's how the comic was too, because the comic would have these big arcs and then have a lot of these one off yeah. stories in between. The cat story is like one of those one shots that's yeah. very memorable. Which last thing I'll bring up too, I've heard people complaining about oh this show lost me in the second half. I got less interested in the second half of the show. The structure of the show changes because you go from the story arc of him getting back all of his items where each episode is very much its kind of own standalone story. And mm -hmm. it kind of does that all the way through the sixth episode. But then seven, eight, nine, ten are all one story arc and it kind of changes tones. It introduces a completely new set of characters and it's kind of like a weird mid season break point kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So 
go into the show kind of knowing that's going to happen. And I think you'll be less disappointed when it does happen. But I know I've heard a lot of people complain about, oh, yeah, the show kind of shits the bed at the end because it totally changes. But that's kind of how comics are. You know, you go through arcs. Yeah, so it is what it is. I am very curious to see how they handle the Corinthian. Boyd Holbrook's good, man. I mentioned him a second ago. He's he's really solid. And I enjoyed his character a lot in the way that they portrayed him. Last thing I'll mention, and this oddly enough ties into the movie that we're discussing. So I watched this crazy Alamo Draft House weird compilation called Trailer Wars on Tubi, which is literally just all of these nonsense movie trailers smashed together. It's exploitation, <gasps> kung fu, black exploitation, horror, crime. It's just all these old trashy trailers, right? And I saw one for this movie that I've heard about. I have just never seen this entire time called Deranged from 1974. This is where the worst begins. This is where we must stop. For beyond is the work of madness. Death! The nightmare of insane murder and lingering death. Deranged. For Mary, it was only the beginning. For Christine, it was already too late. For Dolly, the worst was yet to come. And only Mrs. Cobb knew what he would do next. Sometimes you don't want to believe what you see. But sometimes it's true. The story of a trail of butchery so brutal that newspapers refuse to print its horrifying details. When the horror becomes unbearable, it is too late to scream. It is the, like, based on true events story of Ed Gein. <laughs> oh, it's okay. kind of the first big, serious Ed Gein movie that had been made. And made while he was, like, still alive in prison, by the way. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. This, this again, <laughs> came out in 74. Now, the wild thing is this. Bob Clark was supposed to direct this, and he shadow produced it instead because he was like, oh, this is too extreme. This is too crazy. This movie feels a lot like Texas Chainsaw from the same year and obviously Texas Chainsaw is based on the whole Ed Gein story yeah. partially yeah. but it feels like that in that weird gross desolate kind of way mm -hmm. so I mentioned Bob Clark Bob Clark directed Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and Black Christmas one of our favorites nice yeah he directed another very well known Christmas staple movie and that is A Christmas Story so weird that dude that made Black Christmas also made You'll Shoot Your Eye Out the directors of this movie are Jeff Gillen and Alan Ormsby. They are both dudes who worked on Bob Clark's other movies like Death Dream and Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Jeff Gillen, this is the only thing he ever directed. He is in A Christmas Story as Santa Claus. Shut up. He's mean Santa. Yeah. Oh. And he directed this movie about Ed Gein because there's other wild stuff like Marion Waldman from Black Christmas, the like actress that plays the crazy old den mother who's drinking alcohol yeah, that she's hidden. The drinking all the time. Yeah, yeah. She's yep. in it and it's all shot in Canada, of course. But the connection is the actor who plays the Ed Gein analog in this called Ezra Cobb is Robert's Blossom 
the old man who sells the car in Christine, he is LeBay. He's the guy that sells the car. The amalgamation of the two brothers from the book. But we'll exactly right. So so far away. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Imagine that old man 10 years prior as Ed Gein. And there's so many dumb little mannerisms and like details from all that story that I know in the back just fucked up part of my brain. Yeah. Just things about him laughing weird and making bad jokes. Yes. Yeah. All the witnesses that talked about the his you laughing. You know, just constantly just be like, yeah. her, 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 her. <laughs> All the stuff I learned, or we all three of us probably learned from last podcast yeah. episode. Yeah, just nonsense stuff like that that they got right. Yeah. It's a grody movie, but it was at least interestingly enough kind of a weird thing, because you kept having this interviewer guy literally inserting himself into the scene with his glasses and his suit holding microphone. Mm-hmm. Ezra then dug up his mother and put her back in the house and just, uh, and he keeps like physically stepping into the scenes as they are oh, going. Weird. So th- it's like this weird structure that the movie is doing. Oh, is it doing like at the end of Twilight Zone episodes where like I was just scene freezes that. and he walks and in. he walks through. Yeah, yeah. It's that except the scene doesn't freeze. It just keeps going like oh, this okay. stuff keeps happening in the background <laughs> and this guy just kind of walks really into funny. the frame okay well yeah twilight zone did that too kind yeah. of so it's it's definitely that kind of thing when i saw the trailer on the trailer wars doc i was like okay i need to check this out and then i looked it up robert's blossom is in it yes i need to watch that as like a weird coincidence thing for this and then yeah, yeah just all the weird deep connection to like a christmas story and black christmas sure <laughs> so weird yeah. weird rabbit hole that i fell down that's bizarre bizarre yeah oh my God, that's like the funnest facts that i can keep in my back pocket around christmas time like well <laughs> did you actually know yeah cool Derek. what have you got so actually i'm usually like the more of the comics and video games boy but again i've been on a roll of movies lately um i got two movies i got two big movies actually to talk about for the first movie i'm just gonna go ahead and like put a trigger warning right here because this movie heavily involves like as one of the main characters in the movie gary Busey. Oh. gary Busey most recently has sex charges in New Jersey laid against him. Oh, woof. He was arrested from a hotel room. Yep. Yep. Oh, yep. Woof. Yep. So, I somehow did not hear this news. Ooh, woof. Yeah. Yeah. Fourth mm-hmm. degree criminal sexual contact, fourth degree attempted sexual assault, and a single count of harassment. Yep. He was arrested. And from a convention. It happened at a convention. From a convention. Yep. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. He's facing charges in New Jersey. So, so you sure you want to talk about this? <laughs> movie <laughs> i do because i there's a lot of better shit in this movie than him okay this movie i want to talk about is predator 2 mm. 1990s follow-up to the original predator los angeles 1997 it's the hottest summer on record pollution is choking the city the gangs control the streets it has not been a nice day as bad as things are they're about to get worse. Much worse. Whoever killed him is gonna pay. I'm gonna finish it. It has almost no weight. But it cuts like steel. Incredible. Whoever did this took out four men armed with machine guns by hand. Dead 
Ramsey, Ruben Blades, Maria Conchita Alonso, Bill Paxton. Predator 2. He's in town with a few days to kill this Thanksgiving. Part of the reason why I'm bringing this up to you is because of how great Prey was yeah. and the small Easter egg that ties that to Predator 2 and the rest of the Predator franchise. Yeah, very exciting. Predator 2 kicks all kinds of ass, by the way. Yeah. In such a early 90s action film way. I love that it's sort of like 90s kind of near future dystopia. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Of Los Angeles where it's just gang warfare. I love that whole aspect of it is the future. Crime has taken over Los Angeles, the year 1997. And it's just like, cool, yeah, so four years from now, neat. Yeah. Parts of Los Angeles are semi, like, escape from New York, escape from LA, but not Mm. quite there yet. It's just sweltering heat all the time, which that's realistic, I guess. I'm here. I can tell you it's real. (laughs) Yeah. It follows Danny Glover, who is a cop in this movie. Danny Glover is a cop. Who would have known? Yeah. I know, right? Despite now known piece of shit, Gary Busey being in this movie, I do love this cast specifically Danny Glover and Bill Paxton. It's always great to see Bill Paxton in the the 90s role. And and Aaron, we joked about this. Bill Paxton has been killed by not just the Predator. He has been killed by a Terminator Terminator? and a Xenomorph. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Yep. Xenomorph, Predator, and Terminator have killed him multiple times. So, uh, So yeah, you're missed, Bill Paxton. uh, (laughs) But uh, this movie rips all kinds of ass. It actually is pretty solid horror-adjacent action action flick because I hadn't seen Predator 2 in forever. I probably hadn't seen Predator 2 in at least a decade, maybe more. Yeah. I don't remember how scary it was. And it's not that scary, but it does have some really cool horror beats to it. This Predator, the city hunter is what they call it in this movie. Unlike even the Predator in the first movie and the Predator and Prey, um, this one actually like fucks with them psychologically because it records people's voices and like plays it at them. That whole scene in the graveyard. Yeah want some candy want some candy and then later on he's like slaughtering a train full of people and he's just saying want some candy like there's some cool horror beats to it oh my god it's been so long i don't even remember that that's crazy where this movie really shined for me there's a character named king willie and he's like the local drug lord but also kind of a voodoo priest this movie's wild. Um, Danny Glover goes and meet him and he basically just shares all this cryptic shit of you're hunting a demon and you can't kill that which cannot be killed and blah, blah, blah. And then the predator appears and King Willie recites a Bible verse at him. Aaron, if you want to put that clip in right here. And then they have basically like it's applied a a fight to the death. That part was like where the movie really started shining for me. This movie knows exactly what it's doing and it does not give a shit. It goes like full steam ahead. All the really interesting reveals, you know, the the multiple. I love all that. I thought that was all good additions to the lore, like an urban setting. And that the fact that the person who is the great prey for this predator is just a guy who he is a badass, but he's not like a commando badass. He's more just a resourceful, is aware of his surroundings, catches a glimpse of things. And he's very take matters into my own hands. Damn it. Give me your badge and gun kind of 
cop. Yeah. This just feels like one of those movies we, we don't really see anymore of, in terms mm-hmm. of like just that sweet spot of not quite 80s action, but not quite 2000s really clean action movie either. Just that mm-hmm. it's still ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Like ridiculous yeah. action flick of like the, where Independence Day and Terminator 2 and this fall into. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I had a blast with it. Really sucks that the news came out about Carrie Busey. So yeah. if anyone doesn't want to check out this movie for that reason, completely understandable because he is a major part. That's why I'm not even talking about his whole part of the movie just because I don't want to bother with that. But Bill Paxton and Danny Glover really chew up the scenery. This has a great character actor cast and a lot of people like that guy actor. There's a ton of other people in this movie. In addition to everybody that you mentioned, Ruben Blades is in it and Maria Conchito Alonso, Robert Davi's in it. There's all kinds of wild people in this. Director is Stephen Hopkins. Yeah. Didn't he do, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he do a Nightmare on Elm Street? Yeah, so Stephen Hopkins did Nightmare, I want to say five, but he also did the like 90s Lost in Space movie (laughs) with uh, Gary Oldman and William Hurt and all those people. Yeah, Yeah. he did that. And the guy from Friends. The guy from Friends, that's who I was trying to think of, yeah. (laughs) He did The Ghost in the Darkness, which is kind of a rad lion lion attack movie. And he did fucking Judgment Night. He's had a pretty solid, interesting chunk of stuff that I would certainly recommend as weird mm. 90s genre fodder. Ugh, but awesome. yeah, it's, it's Predator 2 rules, man. I As much as everybody's going back and talking about the Predator movies now that Prey is out, and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. Prey is the best one since the first one. It's like, mm, I don't know. I definitely love Prey, but I also really like 2, and I really like Predators uh, with an S as well. So I think that really the only Predator movie I don't like is The Predator, which oddly enough is the Shane Black one. That is the one that should 100% be right up my alley but i've yeah. not really found anybody that likes that one it's just not good what about avp i don't count those they're not real <laughs> <laughs> those movies didn't happen for like a genre <laughs> franchise right mm-hmm. predators actually holds up overall because there's really only one misfire out of all those chunk of movies now um and we have what five of them now um if you don't count avp Granted, I have not seen it since I saw it in high school when it came in theaters. I remember having fun with the first Alien vs. Predator. Oh, well, it was so exciting. Now, I've heard the second one is a fucking mess. Yeah, I didn't see the second one, but I remember the first one just because it was like, yeah, let's just do that. That's so cool. And I'm pretty easily satisfied with shit like that. So. Well, and for all the bullshit we're hearing nowadays of just, bleh, women can't do this. I remember an Alien vs. Predator. Sana Lathan the human survivor. Yeah, and she's great. Yeah. Yeah. She teams Mm -hmm. up with the Predator and they kill the shit out of an alien queen. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. So I'd remember AVP at least being fun, but I haven't seen it in ages. And then I didn't bother with the the second AVP. But the second one's bad. It's it's rough. Yeah. (laughs) Because the first one was like, this is a novelty, this is fun, and I felt like I didn't need a second one. Yeah, yeah. Novelty anymore after that. I know it's a really dumb movie, but I also found Freddy vs. Jason pretty fun. Oh, yeah. But they don't need a second one ever. No to that so it was fun for what it was but yeah I'll move on from that the second movie so us doing Christine has put me in a big John Carpenter mood again he's like back in the news and shit right now so I know right yeah Yeah. by the time that this episode comes out I think Halloween ends will be about to hit theaters if not already yeah but the more we do this show the more I get exposed to film at large the more I get exposed to John Carpenter the more and more I think John Carpenter might 
might be my favorite director ever or my favorite movie creative ever. Sure. Yeah. So like uh, to give you an idea, like because uh, after watching Christine all week long, I've been listening to like his lost themes one through three. He's a great musician. He's a great writer. Obviously, him yeah. and Deborah Hill wrote Halloween. He's one of those where it's like, if you believe in God, God gave with both hands and just gave him all <laughs> these talents. And it's yeah. like, stop. When I found out about his music, I was just like, what? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even his music rules. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. So with all that table setting aside, my second recommendation is for the first time ever, I've watched this, mind you, this week. Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. Oh my god, you just watched it. Holy so fuck. Good. Was this yeah. movie so good? Like, so good. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where Big Trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. He make one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. How are you going to spring us? I have no idea. I figured you had seen this because I know at some no. point when we were in college, that is a movie that I watched on my birthday and we had a bunch of people over. So I figured that you had seen it. Okay. I, I wasn't there. Yeah. I was either doing nursing school stuff or we weren't friends yet. I'm bringing it up as a horror recommendation because it is done by like horror master John Carpenter. And it is. there is a lot of horror elements to this movie. There's a lot of John Carpenter horror influence on this movie with shots and everything else. This movie's a fucking blast. It is just fun. So like, fun. Oh, yeah. And it is like a movie that should not have worked. I mean, at the time it didn't work, but like in retrospect, it's become a cold classic. Even on paper now, it, it seems like a movie that should not work, but somehow it commits like a thousand percent to what it is. Yes. It is so confident in what it's doing that even if it lacked just a little bit of confidence, it would have fallen apart and it would have been just way too cheesy or like it would have gone the way of like that Friends Forever, the ninja movie that is really so bad that it's good. Miami Connection. Miami Connection. Like it's a goofy <laughs> movie, but it's a legit good movie. It's a fantasy martial arts action black comedy movie that stars Kurt Russell, who like is just Carpenter's big bro. One of the fears I had going into this was okay you know it has a lot of asian influence it's taking place in chinatown there is an argument i guess to be made of just some of the criticism with that but the rest of the cast is just legit great actors and ones that he even collaborated with dennis dan who i we've talked about previously aaron in uh prince of darkness with colin bunn he was in that he plays wang chi who is at first you think is going to be like his sidekick but i want to say like throughout this movie this movie kind of takes the piss out of jack burton oh totally yeah so many like slapstick gags happen to jack burton where like he kind of 
whoa, 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 like his way <laughs> yeah. through a fight. Whereas Wang Chi like legit kicks people's ass and like is beating the shit out of people and like flying through the air fighting. Basically the character that is an influence of Raiden in Mortal Kombat as a whole. James Hong plays David Lopan, who is a Chinese sorcerer who basically is the influence for the Mandarin in Marvel Comics. Yeah, he's kind of all of those Asian stereotype evil sorcerer kind of characters but Mm -hmm. it's interesting kind of how they play him in this because he's definitely aware of that and kind of a smart ass about it and again Jack Burton is also so much of a dope that it feels like it's doing something kind of weird and transgressive but it's getting away with it in a way that doesn't feel sketchy it feels like Jack Burton's been pulled into something that's not his fight and then he's kind of slipping on banana peels his way through the whole thing while really this This movie feels more like Wang Chi to me is the hero and like Jack Burton is helping him like as Mm -hmm. his bro, basically, Um, which that was not what I was expecting. And that's the reason why, like, it doesn't feel that problematic, at least. And Gren, I'm a straight white guy, so like I don't have the best insight into this, but it feels like everyone is in on it, like Victor Wong, James Hong, Dennis Dan. Everyone who's playing an Asian character feels like they are a thousand percent committed to what they're doing in this movie. And they all legitimately seem like they're having a great time. They do. Also, too, this whole movie is an influence on on Mortal Kombat as a whole because the uh, lightning, rain, and thunder, like the three <laughs> guys who control the elements, they are all, all basically Raiden. And then Lopan also, without him, there wouldn't be no Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat, who was the original Mortal Kombat villain. Yeah. Man, yeah. like, did I have a blast with this movie. And everything about it just seems, like, so iconic. Aaron, where I live now, there's a, a restaurant and I even sent you like that video of the whole interior of their bathroom because their entire bathroom yeah. is themed this movie alone. That's so cool. And this is like a Vietnamese oh rest- a famous restaurant. Yeah, that's like in the downtown Chinatown where I live now. Man, this whole thing felt like a video game, which makes sense as to why John Carpenter loves video games so much and is like a huge proponent of video games as art, because this movie feels like one of those Streets of Rage-esque video games. There's so many elements from the streets of Chinatown and San Francisco all the way to like these Indiana Jones-ass set pieces. Yeah, it feels very Indiana Jones, but yes. like 80s. Yeah. But like yeah. it's taking the piss out of Indiana Jones, too, yes. which I feel yes. like John Carpenter kind of did on purpose this feels like it's taking the piss out of a lot of that genre of film that was also coming out around that time i remember beyond just the mortal Kombat influencing that i also read that like taika waititi took a lot of influence from this movie for like thor ragnarok even mm, that makes sense. and a lot of his own brand of comedy and i was shocked with how much of a kung fu movie it was too because yeah. yeah. there was some legit good fights in this i mean granted by the end like people are again flying through the air and shooting lightning <laughs> bolts all that ridiculousness is there too then there was actually like great ass kung fu and all the flying and you know lightning and stuff is very i mean that's wuxia all said and done i mean i know one movie that was a big influence on carpenter for this one is warriors from zoo mountain and that is nothing but fantasy world people flying around on wires and like killing demons with you know magic swords and stuff like that so yeah, yeah. that's all very much part and piece for hong kong fantasy stuff for sure but yeah and i loved who is it kim uh Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall. I was just looking that up. I was like, I couldn't remember who the female <laughs> lead was. Yeah. yeah. Kim Cattrall. Yeah. I, I love her name is Gracie Law and she's a lawyer. Yeah. 
dumb shit like that that in any other movie would just fall fucking flat but for yeah. some reason it works so well here and victor wong is egg shen as well who's like the, the good sorcerer <laughs> again everyone just seems like they're all in on this a thousand percent and yeah. they're all actually having a good time it's just a wacky ass wild ride of a movie but yeah then like you have like the horror elements of just some of the monsters they encountered the wild man that comes out of nowhere yeah. and then like whenever they first encounter lopan as a ghost yeah it, it's just good shit such a good movie so if you liked it there is a comic book from boom studios that directly continues the story oh and God. it's maybe okay. like 25 30 issues total and then they did a sequel series big trouble in little china old man jack and it's literally like modern day kurt russell as that character again ah. picking up years later oh shit john carpenter wrote this too yeah as much as we like ah. bring up comics and that kind of stuff this is definitely worth checking out it's a lot of fun yeah it, and carpenter co-writes it with eric powell i'm glad carpenter co-wrote it that's fantastic so yeah that's definitely worth checking out if you enjoyed that movie but yeah i'm I'm, so, yeah. I'm shocked that you're just now seeing this honestly yeah, uh, this was childhood favorite. Yeah, again, I've I've only seen memes and I've only seen bits and pieces of this movie, never start to finish. Well, and I can see why older you get and the farther away we get from the movie, you, it might have been like, uh, I might not want to see that. It looks like it's probably just going to be really cringy and problematic. But then you watch it and it's yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels just like anyone could have a blast with this movie. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they make Jack Burton kind of the butt of the joke and so much of it, that's perfect. Because like, I feel like if they would have made him just straight up Snake Plissken, yeah. Kurt Russell, then <laughs> yeah. it might have been a little more problematic. Yeah. Or just like White Savior. Well, that's yeah. the joke is that in his yeah. head, he is Snake Plissken. Yeah. But in reality, he is definitely not. <laughs> no, yeah. he, he uh... But and I love his shit talking through this movie. Like this might be the coolest Kurt Russell I think I've seen in any movie in terms of at least personality. Everyone loves Snake Plissken, and don't get me wrong, Snake Plissken is a, is a badass, but this Kurt Russell, his attitude is my favorite in this movie, and the fact that he just knocks himself out even before a fight on accident, stuff like that just made me laugh so much. Yeah, no, that's great. Cool. So let's go ahead and get into the movie that we are discussing this week as our first season of Spoop episode. Uh, like I mentioned at the top, we are going to be covering movies this month that are about about cursed objects so we are going to be kicking it off with christine from 1983 directed by john carpenter based on the novel by stephen king of the same name here is a trailer what do you mean came back i'm sorry arnie i can't i know you're jealous the kid was cut in half aren't it riot is over So a cursed car first, baby. <laughs> yes, the tried and true Stephen King trope of take item, curse it. 
movie yeah. book. <laughs> Spooky book. stapler. Yeah. Millions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Shelby, we, we were trying to get some guests for at least one or two of these episodes for this month. We just kind of threw the idea out to you. As luck would have it, you had just recently watched Christine. Yes. It sounds like you're a fan of John Carpenter and you have also read this book by Stephen King. I have. And I know we've talked about Stephen King with you in the past a little bit. So yeah, like what is it about Christine that like you wanted to come on and guest for this one specifically? And what got you to watch the movie recently too? Was yeah. it just an itch you had to rewatch okay. or was it the first time you watched it? So I read the book in, you know, when I was younger, loved the book. I had actually not seen the movie because I really okay. enjoyed the book. I just kind of avoided the movie a little bit. I, I went through a very long phase of being a snob of if I've read the book, I'm not going to see the movie because the book is better. <laughs> but then it was like two weeks ago, my husband, James, who's been on the show with film history. Yep. It's streaming. I forgot where we even saw it. And we just like happened to come across it. Yeah. I think it's on Netflix. Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. And he was like, I've never seen that movie. And I was like, you know what? I've never seen the movie, but I read the book. It was one of my favorite Stephen King books. I know. I know. Someone's yelling at me right now. <laughs> I, um, but it was one of my favorite Stephen King books. And I was like, I'd love to watch the movie because I'm past my snobbery. And let's do this. And it was funny because I surprised myself at how much I remembered from the book to compare to the yeah. movie. And I really enjoyed the movie. I mean, it's John Carpenter, which is one of the reasons I was like, you know what? Let's watch. I'm sure it's a great movie. And so, yeah, it was just random. And when you when you guys messaged me that, I was like, what a weird coincidence that I just watched yeah. this seemingly random movie. Also, you had told me when to do cursed objects i didn't think about a car even though it's an object it's a big object but you know you think about dolls and you know <laughs> divic boxes and stuff like yeah. that yeah and like let's kind of start there the idea of cursed objects has been around for centuries probably at this point since recording your ministry specifically leading in with christine the one that i immediately thought of was james dean's car sure because that's yeah. supposedly little bastard cursed little mm -hmm. bastard there's even rumors behind like one of hitler's cars being cursed yeah i've heard that um which would make sense besides annabelle the doll obviously um there's the crying boy painting Oof. there's rumors that <laughs> it caused a bunch of fires to happen and everything yeah. in these houses would get burned down except the painting itself there's rumors that the hope diamond is cursed certain tombs of egyptian pharaohs of course are cursed robert the doll annabelle blah 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 stoop chairs i was reading about oh hooded chairs it's very yeah. fascinating that uh dead man chairs specifically yeah like what we attach curses to a lot of it has to do with objects that were around a lot of death and like misery but then there are also those random things that are now attached to like the idea like the crying boy painting was just painted by like an italian painter back in like the early 1900s but then it just so happens this urban legend almost developed around it yeah. causing all these these fires it kind of goes into a little bit of tulpa yeah. territory of just like if you attach enough belief and energy yeah. to this thing like does it sort of become true at that point um i remember there was another painting and i think this might have been more of like a creepypasta-esque going back to like what we were talking about earlier shelby with, i know uh, which no one sleep. you're going to mention too yeah yeah the anguished yeah. man a painting that apparently was created by an unknown artist and the person who claims he inherited from his grandmother who told him that the artist created the painting with his own blood and committed suicide afterwards. <laughs> Perfect. Right. Maybe around 2009, 2010, I want to say, he would upload videos to his YouTube channel claiming that he was hearing crying and moaning noises in his house and even saw the figure of the anguished man at night and everything. That old shit still gets to me. Yeah. Just like wanting to like, look, 
behind me. Well, and then there's also the hands. The hands. There was of, another one. The hands resist him or the, something he, like that. The hands resist him. Yeah, with the kids. The hand. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's apparently a eBay haunted painting is its other name. Yeah. I think it's one of the first viral like internet memes from like 2000 of like haunted paintings and quote unquote haunted objects that are now sold on eBay that uh, the McElroy brothers always joke on. <laughs> yeah. Like haunted Justin. doll watch. Yeah. Haunted doll watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like it's so cursed objects have been around for a while. Something I wanted to ask you guys, I don't know if you know this at all or not. Did the James Dean car, did that have any influence on Stephen King writing no. Christine at all? No. 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 In all the research I've done, I have not seen that come up once. Yeah, I've never seen it come up at all. Okay. I was just curious about that. It's more just his obsession with cars, 1950s cars, and yeah. just making things cursed. Yeah. What I have <laughs> read is apparently he had a Pinto that was kind of a pain that just kind of gave him the idea of, oh, God, what if I was stuck inside of this thing and, you know, it was cursed or whatever like it literally was just a crappy car that he had at one point in time is kind of what inspired it he returns to the idea of a killer vehicle a lot yeah. because in two of his short stories that i remember one of them is like a broken down old pickup truck that's across the street from like a person the person claims it's slowly getting closer and closer to his house and then like he's discovered dead and they believe he drowned himself in motor oil but it's implied that like oh, the truck killed one. him and then yeah. there's the other one which was a more modern one I think it was in like one of his more modern collections of horror short stories back from like 2013 or 2012 where it was like a killer car that if anyone actually touched the car it would basically eat them huh. he kind of returns to this idea of a cursed car a bit maximum overdrive baby maximum, maximum overdrive, overdrive yeah. the entire movie is just haunted cars and cocaine wild yeah yes that's Oof. the one with like the green goblin face yep. 18 wheeler that's the main bad guy yes. yeah yeah and then like the helicopter at the end. Yeah, yeah, that movie's ridiculous. That is one of the wild movies that has a kind of hilarious trailer where you don't really even see stuff from the movie. Oh. It's just Stephen King sitting on a desk <laughs> looking crazy. And he's just like, hey, it's me, Stephen King, the master of horror. Now I'm making a movie. Come check it out. It's called Maximum Overdrive. And like, that's the trailer. Because they were like, we can't show any of this footage or no one will come see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But it's literally like the entire movie was just marketed around Stephen King as a person, you know, which is wild. He's the guy. Yeah. But, you know, I remember <laughs> liking that movie, to be honest. Oh, with it's you. fun. It's fun in a ridiculous way. Yeah. Emilio Estevez is the star, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. And honestly, I would like us to cover it one day on our, uh, For sure. on our show. The ending, I remember being very scared. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get out. I, well, and I also remember the ending of the movie is very similar to the ending of the short story and both are dark endings. So I'm glad that they kept it. But going back to Christine, cursed objects, we could do a history rundown of them, but like really don't like they've just been around like yeah. the Dybbuk box is like one of the earliest. It's one of the weird concepts that is universal to like every time period of human existence, every culture, yeah. Yeah. every religion, every group has legends of these weird items of just regular everyday relevancy that somehow have this supernatural kind of pull to them, whether it's good or bad. I mean, literally everything used to Dybbuk boxes earlier, genie lamps, all the way to like, again, Robert the doll, you know, goofy raggedy yeah. Ann doll. There's such a long history of that with humanity because we have these weird tendencies, like you said, to like 
build up in our minds a nexus for like, why is everything in my life going bad? Why is everything around me happening in such a bad way? What is the one thing I can narrow down in my immediate sphere of existence that is different, that is new, that wasn't here before, that I can kind of put all of that energy into, you know, and Mm -hmm. like Derek was joking about it, kind of reverse creates this cursed item in a weird kind of fakey way, because that's what we focus on, you know, so it's, it's not anything that's new, but it is a very interesting, unique human phenomenon that it is something that has just always been part of our cultural consciousness across the world. Well, and like the idea of anime which animism is the belief that there's spirit and soul to everything, including objects. Those kind of beliefs are in every single religion across the globe, all the way from the African indigenous tribes to Japan and Shinto. And even early Abraham Judaism has, again, going to the Dybbuk box, but all all that as well. Like there's old Bible quotes, I think, that have hints of animism in them. Uh, It's just one of those thought form ideas that's been with us since we could think. Yeah. Granted, that's just kind of like our little table setting, I guess, for the idea of the cursed object, because now we're going to get into some batshit idea of <laughs> an evil bad to the bone 1958 Plymouth Fury named Christine that uh, likes to kill people and falls in love with its owner. And makes you hotter. Yeah. Also makes you hotter. Yep. Right at the top, Christine 1983, John Carpenter. It's not scary in the sense of jump scares and all not that. Not at all. It's not at all scary. And it's yeah. funny because no. everybody that I've ever talked to about this movie has been like, I mean, it's not scary. <laughs> But dot, 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 there's things to talk about. You know, so everybody that I've ever talked to is like, nah, this isn't scary. But here's the thing. My dad, who doesn't find some horror that scary, his two favorite horror movies, at least the two that he found the scariest when he was growing up and going to the movies in the 80s. And he was like a young adult teenager by this point. His two were The Omen and Christine. Wow. Interesting. And I wonder if because like I know he was involved in a motor accident. Granted, he was on a motorcycle when that happened. Could he very easily taken his life? And I would not be talking to to you right now i wonder if that has anything to do with it like maybe the fear of automobile accidents and all sure, that and like yeah. just kind of for stuff sure, that can happen yeah. on the road i would say for horror newbies if you want to get into john carpenter but you're still a little weary of halloween like maybe halloween is still a little too intense for you christine is probably a great horror starter john yeah. carpenter movie it has a lot of the john carpenter like something stalking in the back of shots granted it's a car, it's a car. you know like it somehow makes the car very michael myers-esque which yeah. i, I I don't think any other director could have done it in this way. Like somehow Jack Armander really makes a car fucking menacing. Yep. That whole point where he's stalking the first bully. That all was straight out of like Halloween. Like some yeah, yeah it shots definitely to me. was. But yes. I feel like this would be a great starter horror movie in general, but also a great introduction to John Carpenter's brand of horror. Mm-hmm. So horror movies, I actually give this a thumbs up. Good to go. Like it's a great movie altogether. It's John Carpenter cool. And you and I, Aaron, talked about this off air, how like no one can do cool in the same way John Carpenter can like dad cool because if anyone else tried to do it it would be lame but like I was grinning so much when like that opening shot of Christine being built being built that was a cool shot of like Detroit <laughs> bad to the, the bone yeah. yep. yes bad to the yeah. bone 
playing. Bad to the Bone is playing and like no other director could get away with that uh, without yeah. it being like fucking cheesy and lame. Right. But for some reason, the way John Carpenter like portrayed it, it made a smile come yeah. across my face. Great movie. But yeah, like I think some fears that this movie can touch on is fears of the road, like of fears of automobiles in general and vehicles. Yeah. The idea of somebody following you and you don't know if they're following you on the road. It's maybe dark outside. You can't quite see who's behind the wheel or even sometimes if anyone's behind the wheel granted i probably deserved it as a shithead teenager me and my friends would play pranks on people but like i've definitely been followed by somebody where i couldn't see into their car yeah. um at night it's a fear that a lot of us that grew up on the road a lot deal with this might be a more american specific fear or like a fear of people who grew up in areas that don't have great public transit systems where there's they're driving a lot people out in the country even well it's both a fear and a fascination. I mean, America is obviously known for being such a car-centric country. Like, culture, just society, revolves around the automobile and transportation. We're a very large country. It's just out of necessity for the most part. I mean, unless you live in a big city where there is public transportation, cars are just kind of a fact of life. I could not get back and forth and live my day if I didn't have a vehicle to do that in, you know, so it's just such a part of our lives that the idea of, you know, not only a car potentially stalking you, trying to kill you is scary in that weird way, but the idea that it starts to kind of possess you and change you and take you over and bond with you in that way. You know, this movie doesn't get into like any kind of body horror stuff necessarily. Like there's no Cronenberg, like Arnie Milder with the car and becoming one with the car kind of thing you know there's nothing like that yeah it's not titane i was about to say like it doesn't like go into the weird psychosexual area of titane but but arnie is attracted to his car though too because like there's a scene where he's like rubbing the the wheel suggestively he literally dies just lightly touching the v on the front what do we think that means right like there's some stuff and in the book there's more physicality to it yes for sure the one thing i have to say because i was young i had really bad acne when i was young one of the biggest things in the book is how he has like cystic really bad acne and his acne starts getting better and like because that was one of the things they called him pizza face and he's starting to like turn to chrome you know basically like she's chroming out his face because like his acne's going away that's a good point yeah that's another facet of this too i like wrote down because there are several actual themes that this deals with that we could talk through you know for all of the talk of you know like a cursed objects the car is really not the focus in this story as much as arnie's transformation and how that impacts all the other people around him the catalyst is the car right yeah but the whole idea of teen identity and going through puberty and growing up at that point in life it's rough right we all have done it everybody does it but the whole idea of fixating your personality around this car. In the book, he's described as not being particularly good at anything, Mm -hmm. but he discovers this car and it's this thing that he can pour all of himself into and create a new identity around. You know, it's like that kid that, you know, was kind of the nerdy kid that everybody picked on and then he disappears for a summer, goes to a camp and works out and comes back and is like, you know, who's this young stud at the school 
now and everybody's <laughs> surprised that it's that loser kid that came back totally different right you know so now arnie's the car guy it gives him confidence and purpose and you know the whole idea of losing that and christine being taken away or christine being destroyed or like the whole idea of wrapping yourself up in that thing mm-hmm. and then potentially losing that new identity is a fear that we all have because we've all gone through yeah. weird stages of that growing up you know yeah there were even elements that reminded me of back when we were in high school we caught the beginning of the mmorpg movement with wow yeah. and i remember like losing like a friend or two to wow and like <laughs> i was about to say you did i did not get into that <laughs> oh well no i only played wow for like a month or two i'm talking about in high school like i didn't try wow until college when i was in high school i remember there was one or two kids that were fairly popular like they weren't necessarily like picked on that much or anything like that but they also never really found an identity they could latch onto. they became obsessed with wow it got to the point where it was almost a problem and like i remember there was yeah. one guy who literally broke up with his girlfriend <gasps> because he wanted to do like a raid and she wanted <sighs> to go out to like a movie Woof. and he was like fuck no oh stuff like God. that happening yeah and then like the other thing that's brought up in christine is the idea of like car culture to me where people who just love their cars so much the idea of someone constantly working on this classic car it's like their project that they do at all times will come home from work and then do it until like nine or ten at night like one of my neighbors used to be that way and granted they weren't obsessed to this level but like i feel like it probably does more in the book shelby and aaron you can talk more about this because i haven't read the book but it touched on it a little bit in the movie of just the idea of car culture in terms of just i know stephen king likes cars and just the idea of fixing up an old school 1950s badass looking thing and that being like who you are your identity and kind of like you were saying but, but it, it also takes a lot out of you. yeah it's draining it's expensive it's something that you have to put a lot of your time and effort and energy and things that otherwise would be going toward your relationships in your life is going into this inanimate object and then you end up kind of in a weird psychological kind of way you put a lot of your value then in that object Mm-hmm. And a lot of your like personal love and affection and attention is now kind of wrapped up in this thing. And you sometimes disassociate how much you care for your wife, for your kids, for your family with, oh, but I love you guys. You know, I love you. And it's like, do you though? Because you spend all your time yeah. with this car. And it's just the weird yeah. like, I think I love you, but I really transposed all of that onto this thing. So it is like that weird kind of angle as well, too, that car culture is certainly a very consuming thing. I mean, there are countless magazines, websites, TV shows dedicated like just to car culture. The fact that there's so much car culture that revolves around this movie specifically and people obsess over all the weird details that they got wrong or that they got right about the car and the car is not even a real thing this particular christine car in air quotes is like not a real car and yet people are fascinated by it and there are car shows where they have awards for like the best christine recreation (laughs) or whatever you know so Derek, to your point it's interesting because it's definitely not something that i ever really pay attention to i'm just not into cars in that way But to kind of put yourself in the mindset of somebody who is obsessive like that, because I am obsessive like that with other things in my life, you know, sometimes to an unhealthy degree. And I have to pull myself back from that, you know, whatever like the thing is I'm focusing on and kind of readjust where I'm putting my attention and my time. Right. So like it's something that, you know, again, haunted car, not scary. 
all the other stuff that swirls around that notion, though, is what is terrifying because the whole losing grip on your life and your relationships and driving people away from you because this addiction is becoming transformative. You know, you are now a different person and you begin to alienate everybody around you like that's scary, you know, and it's scary Mm -hmm. when you have people in your life that you care about who are going through that. You know, the whole addiction allegory in this movie, you know, whether it be drugs or whatever, is very prevalent. And that's something that Mm -hmm. a lot of people can relate to now one way or another, whether it's you or somebody that you love that's going through it. And we don't have to get personal, but like one of the things I wanted to ask both you guys, have you ever seen someone go through addiction and maybe even lost someone you knew or like, you know, friend of a friend saw someone, you know, pass away because of some kind of addiction? Because I feel like even that fear is touched on for Christine because the very last line he says is a hero would have saved him and his best friend like lost his friend to this car. That hopelessness. Oh, Yeah. yeah, I definitely experienced that losing someone to addiction where they passed away and it is it's very similar i feel like christine could also be not just addiction to like a substance but she could be kind of like a model for like a cult and arnie is perfectly susceptible i mean his home life isn't great and one thing they establish a lot in the book he's not only just like a nerd because he's not even like a brainiac they're very much like no like he is not good at anything he's not even particularly smart he's got nothing going for him i think the movie did a better job with the parents kind of highlighting like even though he is the one who turns into an asshole later his parents aren't the best in the beginning like they're not very supportive he gets this you know shitty car to fix up and his mom's like well you're not putting that in the driveway you're absolutely not doing that and it's just kind of like at every corner he's been this very good son and I really like the speech he kind of gave her where it was like I only asked for this one thing like I always do what you tell me to and I just want to fix up this fucking car and obviously we know it's evil but like take away from the mom doesn't know this car is evil and like even Ari doesn't know the car is evil and it is kind of like yeah mom just let him fix up the fucking car chill out you know it could almost be said because of that that's why he ended up buying this how much did it cost like two hundred dollars or something it's like 250 bucks yeah it was something like dirt cheap yeah yeah something like that the embodiment of evil is only 250 dollars yeah so like (laughs) you guys both already touched on this but identity i think is a big thing like he found an identity no one around him was being encouraging like i said even before the car was evil everybody was like arnie what are you doing stop it you know and it's like you guys i finally found something cool no one around him was being supportive in the least yeah there was a time in my life where i would have definitely related to arnie a lot Mm -hmm. and to the point where like despite everything like in the shithead he kind of becomes by the end i thought he was actually a tragic character in this oh i did too absolutely i don't know how tragic he remains in the book Granted, the the transformation is almost overnight where he gains confidence. Mm -hmm. I still felt bad for him because where he started off with. I did love that his best friend was also like the star of the football team. So like his best friend wasn't the bully, which was a nice change of pace Mm -hmm. because like I was also there too in high school. Like I was one of those kids that was kind of friends with everyone, but I was Mm -hmm. also a big giant nerd at the same time. Yeah, I was too. Huge nerd. I was bullied, but at the same time, I had friends in every social circle. Yeah, there were a lot of aspects of Arnie I related to and Shelby I'm glad you brought up his parents because it feels like his parents I mean even back then they were technically boomers it feels like that boomer style parenting where it's the best intentions but they're also worried about appearances whether it's their own appearance and like if their son shames their appearance at all it's like the idea of like not wanting to keep a crappy car in our driveway it's not because the car itself is a problem they don't want the neighbors talking well and they could have seen the signs if he would have worked on the car in the driveway yeah Yeah. I mean I doubt they would have immediately been like this is supernatural 
natural, but he was tucked away in this garage with the old man. I love in the movie how they gave him a spot in the garage where like it wasn't even easily seen when you walk in. Like you can tell he was tucked in this corner so no one could really keep eyes on him or on Christine who, you know, magically is cherry red the next day, basically, you know. But yeah, I think that there had to be some sort of commentary that John Carpenter meant with having it. I mean, you know, the 80s, it was all like, you know, yuppies and stuff. It was perfect lawn. HOVs came from that era or HOAs. I said HOVs. That's a that's the carpool lane. (laughs) Appropriate. Um, Cars (laughs) cars on the brain. But yeah, Yeah. I feel like it's like, okay, well, now you've sent your son away, which I feel like sometimes that's how addictions can start too, without giving this little bit of kindness or this little bit of leeway, just sacrificing a little bit of your perceived reputation. You've pushed your child away to this dark corner of this garage where they're working on a car, but you know, in real life doing heroin or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Bury the problem. Yeah. Well, Mm. not just bury the problem, but choose not to acknowledge it at all. Yeah. It just forces that kid to be more secretive. And it just mm-hmm. further pushes them away where they're not going to be as open to sharing like what's going on and they're not going to be willing to talk to their parents about anything. I mean, that's very much, you know, how I was growing up, certainly. I mean, I was going to say I love my parents to death. There's a lot of aspects that they gave me a good life and everything. But like there was a lot of Arnie's relationship with them in this movie that was reminiscent to my own. Yeah, same. I could really relate in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And there were definitely like a lot of things that, you know, I would keep hidden and not talk about not bring up and stuff that's come up like way later years later you know and it's been like Mm -hmm. wait i didn't know about xyz it's like well yeah didn't tell you you know because i knew how you reacted to you know something before then or whatever you know so yes of course i kept these things secret (laughs) my parents were like wait you're depressed when i like was getting treatment after college i was just like yeah i've been depressed for a while and they took it like a surprise but actually it's like like i knew i couldn't really bring this up with you guys yeah Yeah, for this reason definitely did the like you can tell us anything then i would test that with little things and the reaction would be like yeah i can't fucking tell you everything so i've learned that okay bye you know yep 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 the difference in endings between the book and the movie i don't know i I know we're probably far away from talking about the endings but the ending in the book even had to do with his parents and the endings were so different i prefer john carpenter's ending to be totally honest i think it was more appropriate for the whole setting and in the book arnie ends up dying but it's off screen yeah Derek, do you know the ending of the book? So I read the plot synopsis of the book okay. in preparation for this episode. Oh, for, yeah. I guess anybody who's listening at home who wants to know, but like in the book, Arnie and his mom die off screen going to tour a college in a car accident. And it's kind of a like, can Christine kill people from far away? You know? And Well, and it, it made it sound like the actual spirit of one of the brothers was actually what's causing Christine yes. to be possessed. Yes, Rather exactly. than just Christine being born evil. Quote yeah. unquote. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like having him die by giving in and doing what his mom once and like I'm better now and touring colleges and you're still not really safe from that problem because the problem was never really addressed. Whereas yeah. I, l- I really prefer the movie ending where it's like, let's just have it out here. Let's have him die trying to touch the car and like, let's just do it, you know? Again, touch the V on the car, which there's some, yes. like Aaron, you, you said that earlier, like there's some energy right there. Uh, yeah. Well, after both him being inside of the car, but also the car penetrating him, ultimately, there is a lot of back and yeah. forth psychosexual kind of stuff going on for sure. Nathaniel is in a committed relationship with a car that he's named Chase. He met Chase in a resale lot about five years ago. I love you, baby. It was love at first sight. 
his body and then his interior and everything just together just seemed to fit. And I just felt an instant connection. Another thing, like to circle back around to the parents, because I was watching this movie this time with my mother, because again, I'm crashing at their place right now while I'm in the middle of moving. We were joking about how overwrought the parents can be at some times and in the book, even more so as far as Mm got to keep up appearances and the like weird loss of control. And that's kind of the thing too. cars. If we're talking about like car culture and especially in like America, right? Cars equal freedom and autonomy for teenagers, period. Yeah. And then it also 100% in effect is a loss of control and a fear of letting go for parents. It is exactly this weird transformative totem that comes into a teenager's life that marks a point, right? It was such a big step in my life. Yeah. Yeah. When I got my first car was such a big step Mm -hmm. to me being like Mr. Independent. I know what's good for me. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's treated as like a big deal, you know? like cool here's your first car this is this big moment in your life as a teenager we are granting you you know some level of freedom and autonomy and then in a lot of families it's like no you're not gonna get a car because we don't want you going out and joyriding around and getting into trouble so it's cars equal this weird moment of transformation in a teenager's life and it's definitely one of those things that parents have to come to grips with because it's not just oh I'm granting my kids some autonomy and freedom away from us away from like me and my rules under my roof but it's also like handing your kid a loaded gun in a way because it's like this thing can also potentially kill you you can potentially die in this vehicle if you do not treat it with respect and be responsible you also then have to trust in that social contract way that everybody else around you is going to be that way so it's kind of this weird thing that we do in modern society of now it's your time to have this thing in your life you know and there's a point of no return really (laughs) this multi-ton thing that can go up to like 120 miles an hour yeah And also in America, because we rely on car culture so much, and that's just how it is, I've experienced it's been a tool of like abuse. My own grandmother used to drive. And when she got married, my grandfather back in the 50s was like, well, you're done driving. Give me your license and was very controlling. Just take it away. Yeah. When I was in high school, I had a really abusive boyfriend. And when it was time for me to get my driver's license, he tried to tell me, you don't need your license because you'll have me for the rest of your life and I can drive you where you need to go. Woof. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a big learning lesson for me too, where it was, yeah, if you're not American, I can see, and I wish we weren't so tied to this, but in America, it really is like, it's a, it's freedom. It really is freedom to a lot of people. Like I know not to all and it depends on your area, but for me, at least in that moment, I was like, well, I'm definitely getting my driver's license now. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And despite air travel, I, I didn't look it up, but I'm guessing majority Americans to get around around the country, like city to city road trips use cars still for like long distance traveling as well. That's where like some of that fear of where the car is actually stalking people in this movie came in because it seems like the people it's stalking it happens like more on the outskirts of the city or town they're in. It does. Yeah. Uh And there are a lot of those shots kind of like almost in Lost Highway, David Lynch's Lost Highway too, or even Twin Peaks, like those scenes where you're on a highway in the middle of the night and this is a lot of America. There's no lights. Your only lights are (laughs) Yeah. The car headlights of what whoever's on the road with you. I did a couple like two years ago, a drive from Louisiana up to Kansas overnight, 15 hour drive. And like there were a lot of moments specifically even through rural Texas where it was just me in the road and maybe yeah. one or two other cars. Yeah, I grew up in the middle of the desert and most of our roads were like that. The highway was just pitch black, just headlights. Yeah. 
There's yeah. definitely an eeriness about it for sure. There is something too that I like about this book, and this also occurs a lot with cursed object stories, but the whole idea that you kind of fall into a trance and that you like lose time and you wake yes. up and it's hours later and you feel like, you know, you've been in another dimension or you like had a flashback to a different time or something like that, right? That idea is pretty prominent in Christine the book, and they kind of allude to it a little bit in the movie, but some of those details aren't in the movie proper. But they filmed some, like there are some deleted scenes where they kind of mention this, but there's the whole entire aspect of Arnie working on this car, working on this car, being at the garage. And finally, Darnell and one of the other guys hanging around, they're like, when is this kid fixing this car? He's mostly just hanging around, dicking around, but he's not really like doing anything you know we don't see him actually doing a whole lot of work and yet we come in and this car is fixing itself up yeah there's that weird aspect of lost time and arnie finally starts to realize wait no i did fix that did i did i replace this part i can't remember but surely i did i remember that specifically him thinking about replacing something it was like one of the headlights or something yeah yeah that time is just gone and he can't account for what was i doing that whole time where was i (laughs) i mean it also makes me think of like again long distance driving where you kind of go on autopilot and zone out exactly that's what i'm saying you have those weird moments where once you're in the car uh uh-huh and you're just going and you're going and you're going there's like a weird hypnotic quality to being on the road and driving especially when you're driving brake neck fast for whatever reason especially if it's at night or an aspect i do love about the book which is not in the movie is that the end takes place during winter when it's snowy yeah christine like that hot red in the snow Mm -hmm. all that would be visually so cool that imagery would have been beautiful exactly i get the logistics of why that was not really practical also they shot it in california but there is that interesting aspect of lost time and just zoning out when you're like in proximity to this thing and speaking of the movie really does bring you back to being a teenager i specifically remember the first time i experienced that feeling of lost time like i had been babysitting and i was like 17 and i remember getting home and i was like i don't remember the drive i don't know how i got home and here i am and i remember it was the first time i ever experienced that my parents explained it to me like yeah it's like a thing that happens but it was like terrifying i was like no but i don't remember driving home and i'm here and i'm I'm not okay with this yeah this is not okay and i feel like arnie is the extreme version of that but we all experience that for the first time at some point where or those who drive and it's like no this is very disturbing what is happening (laughs) so i would have that from time to time because i used to do uh night shift nursing Mm. and so like a lot of times if it was a slow night they'd let someone go home early and i would i wouldn't mind doing that so i'd be leaving at three in the morning it's totally dead on like a tuesday night and i'll drive back to the house and like don't even remember how i got there i remember even one night where i was at a stoplight and i was the only car in the road and it was a four-way stop stoplight and i remember like sitting there looking at the red light next thing i remember is my head hitting the steering wheel and my horn waking me up and thankfully my my foot stayed on the brake i was like okay i need to get home and go to bed this is not good (laughs) but yeah like that's an aspect of like i hadn't even thought about it would have been interesting to see a little bit of that in this movie granted that it happens in the book so much but i also think that would have lent more to like but is it the LeVay brother taking over Arnie now through yeah. Christine? Yeah. Which I'm glad is not in the movie. I th- I'm glad that they just never explain why Christine was made evil. I love it yeah. too. Like even the intro showing her being created in Detroit in the 50s and her first yep. victim. And it, there's no rhyme or reason. She they, She's literally lined up with all the other regular car 
powers and here she comes and she's just already evil. She's just already ready. Well, and I love she's the only one that's red out of like this line of like silver ones. Yeah. Yep. I love that guy is checking the hood and then the hood closes on his hand. Yeah. And then the other guy like goes into the car to like smoke and then I guess he gets carbon monoxide poison. Like ashes <laughs> on the seat too, yeah. I feel like John Carpenter was like, we don't have time for the LeVay thing. Yeah. It's just yeah. an evil car. Like, yeah. she was born that yeah. way. She is that yeah. way. Part of the reason yeah. why they cut that whole idea out too was American Werewolf in London had just come out. Oh. And so they didn't necessarily want the whole, oh, this other character who is slowly kind of rotting corpses, who is showing up and talking and taunting and influencing. Mm. You know, they didn't want that whole thing to be kind of repeated. On one hand, I'm kind of glad that, yeah, the car is just evil. They don't explain it. On the other hand, there could have been still some cool stuff like, I like at certain times when people are in the car, they like look over and all of a sudden there is one of the dead victims in the car as they were when they were killed. So they're all mangled up or burned up or whatever. That would have been pretty terrifying. Yeah, Yeah, that would have been some terrifying imagery. There's lots of times when people get in the car and they at first they're like, okay, everything's fine. Then all of a sudden, what is that smell? It just like smells like rotting corpses inside this car and it's overwhelming. And there's just the weird sense of dread that people have mm-hmm. when they're in the car is interesting and the movie doesn't quite get on that the movie doesn't really spend a whole lot of time inside the car no because despite the book even being told from dennis's point of view like he is mm-hmm. recalling all of the narrative of the book there's still a lot of moments that take place inside the car the movie is pretty exterior to the car for the most part i mean there's obviously the scene where darnell is killed there's the scene where uh, Lee almost chokes to death. There's yeah. those moments. Which I'm glad they kept in. I always liked that aspect. Yeah. They referenced the little girl choking and then yeah, exactly. choking on the same food and everything. Yeah. God, and the creepy part about that in the book, too, is you find out the whole story was his daughter started choking on the hamburger. piece of hamburger. Yeah. And he, like, stopped on the side of the road and pulled her out, tried to, like, Heimlich her and whatever, and she died. But then you mm-hmm. find out later, oh, no, that's just the story he told because his mind was blanking out. The wife tells the story that he gets the daughter out of the car and realizes he can't do anything for her, and he puts her back in the car so that she dies inside the car yeah. in this weird offering kind of way. Like that was a moment in the book where I was just like, oh, yeah, the book was definitely scarier. There had a lot more really unsettling deaths and stuff. It's gnarly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, and one of the like alleged things about this movie is it wasn't violent enough to get an R. It was actually yeah. pretty tame. And they were it like, is. well, crap, we don't want to put this movie out with a PG rating. It's a bloodless movie. Yeah, for the it most is. part it is. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to put it out with a PG rating because they were mm-hmm. afraid that people just weren't going to go because there was no PG-13 just yet. That's right. So they literally added in a bunch of fuck words and everything else to push it over into R. But in the book, man, some of the deaths are gnarly. Yeah, I like we get more of the history and which I was what I was missing from the movie just because I was really excited for it. I was like, oh, we're going to get to see the like what happened before and nope. Yeah. There it wasn't. And the car in this movie is pretty aggressive. It has that Terminator-esque kind of feel. The way that I was thinking of the car the entire time, like based on how the book is writing it, it's like something from Mad Max Fury Road. 
it's like <laughs> Kurt Russell's car from Death Proof. The way that it yeah. just smashes into people and just annihilates them. Yeah. The yeah. only instance that you get of like a hint of that in the movie is when Harry Dean Stanton tells him, oh yeah, he was literally a puddle of meat that they had to scrape up with a shovel. I loved that scene. I loved because it showed us Christine is willing to destroy herself yeah. because she's going to rebuild and like go down that alleyway and all of her shit scraping. The practical effects in this movie were incredible Bananas. love it awesome oh my God. yeah they were really good the, whenever she would rebuild herself honestly my husband and i were like how did they do that which is so, so great good, when you yeah. see a movie that old and you're like how did they do that you know the one death i think i mandela affected in my brain is darnell's <laughs> and in the movie really? it's kind of like oh they just squish him gets kind of goofy you know that he just yeah. gets squished in the car because like oh yeah. it's a fat guy and we're gonna squish him between the steering and the seat haha mm -hmm. yeah been there done that it's not comfortable but i don't think i would die from it in the book he is in his house in his living room the car shows up and he's like yeah i'm inside my house fuck you and of course the car positions itself headlights blasting right into the front of his house and just smashes into his living room he kind of runs up the stairs and the car is inside oh. his house driven up the stairs <laughs> he yeah. has a heart attack and dies and falls down that. the stairs and then it just demolishes just just runs over and over and over and just creams him into the stairs. And in my head, like I said, I think I Mandela affected that as being in this movie because it's been a couple of years since I've watched this. And I was thinking in my head that that happened in this movie. Like I have these weird visual images in my head of that car smashing through a building. That was a vivid part of the book going up the stairs and stuff. It was very, yeah. like, cars can't go upstairs, but it did. And it was, yeah, I can see why you would yeah. think that because you had seen the movie, but yeah, I probably would have remembered it being the movie because it's, it's so vivid in the book. Yeah. Because I think that's the part where we realize Christine cannot be stopped by like walls. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> she does right? not adhere to the rules of the road. Yeah. You, you know? are not even safe in your home because this mm -hmm. car will kamikaze through the front of your house to get you. Yeah. I think the movie does a good job of showing that anyway, even if it doesn't necessarily have those parts. Because going back, like you said, Shelby, to like, he thinks he's good in that alleyway that's yeah. a little too thin for the yeah. car but the car just says fuck it or the scene where it fucking goes into the gas station and just oh, blindsides. Yeah. The car yeah. on fire rolling in slow motion down that empty black highway is such a good visual. So cool. Talk oh, about so a, a fucking terrifying thing if you were getting chased by a possessed car right? totally on fire and, and it is not fire. stopping. Yeah, like just a giant fireball. That's a practical effect. That seemed really awesome. Like, yeah. yeah, to be the stunt person behind the wheel of that car on complete fire. Ugh. Ridiculous to me. Yeah. So one more thing as far as themes go, and then we'll jump into like some of the production since we're, we're kind of already talking around the edges of that stuff. Another interesting theme that I yeah was not present at the time. This is, you know, probably something that people have just started thinking about in the last bunch of years. And, you know, certainly it's been on other people's minds longer. But there is a very interesting case for this story being a trans allegory. In a lot mm. of ways. Okay. Uh, it's a lot about identity. It's a lot about people around you not accepting that identity. It's a lot about coming to terms with who you are and choose to be, etc. I am not going to dig into the details of that, but 
the person who has this galaxy brain take on it is Brian Fuller. He is the showrunner for Hannibal and American yeah. Gods and lots of other stuff. They had him on the KingCast podcast to talk about Christine. And he goes into this entire huge breakdown about how the story really works well as like a giant trans allegory. Wow. So if that's something that you are like interested in, it's a very, very interesting discussion overall. But his take is kind of mind blowing. Definitely check out that episode of the King cast. I'm add that to my list right now. Yeah, definitely check it out. It's super interesting. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I've never heard that take on it before. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I'm very curious to see what he brings to it because he is currently developing a remake of this movie for Sony and Blumhouse. Oh, oh shit. That is official. Blumhouse is producing it. Sony's producing it. And he's doing the remake. Oh, man. Could he get Carpenter back to do the soundtrack? It's possible. Because like Carpenter's been doing new Halloween soundtracks and everything. Yeah. That would be fucking rad. Another quick thing I just wanted to touch on with the themes. Backtracking a little bit more to like one of the first ones we were talking about, about the idea of addiction and all that. Something that one of you brought up, because personally, I've never been addicted to any anything like we typically associate with addiction, like alcohol, drugs, gambling. That's never been a problem. My addiction, I would say at, at one point or another, it was maybe a, a low key legit addiction. Like I brought up a therapist and had to go to a therapy about this problem for at least a little while is collecting physical media mm. um, and yeah. collecting things. That's a sickness that I could certainly say I have that is uh, completely unresolved. <laughs> yeah, because I still collect a lot of stuff. But at one point, I was collecting on a weekly basis comics, vinyl, retro video games, magic cards. And I was even dabbling in figurines and artwork, like the, the okay. fancy like $200, $300 figurines that you see at comic yeah. shops and mm-hmm. comic cons of characters. It came right before my daughter was born. It was kind of like one of those come to Jesus or like, yeah. you know, realizations that like I need to say goodbye to some of this and it's still something I struggle to this day because I still collect comics and read them and I still play video games when I can that's always something I have to deal with and one of the things that this movie made me feel legitimately uncomfortable about not just the tragedy behind Arnie and me being able to relate to him Mm -hmm. was the idea of me being upset about losing stuff or losing a thing oh I get that I absolutely get that how can I resolve that with the idea of say like someone broke into our house right and stole like my ps5 would i be more upset that they stole my ps5 or like a bunch of my video games that i've spent years collecting and like spent hundreds of dollars on some of the more rare ones Mm -hmm. or would i be more happy and relieved that my daughter and my wife were okay like they didn't harm us or anything thought exercise Yeah, yeah so like there's that point where arnie both his girlfriend and his best friend are like do you love me or do you love me as much as your car? Or do you like, uh, I think you like the car more than I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, they are both also physically hurt. Yeah. In different ways. And it's that whole, yeah. like, I actually got hurt and you are concerned more about your car, you know, like where are your priorities? 
And it's implied that Arnie has never had any luck with dating or anything. He now has the hottest girl in school as his girlfriend. And she actually cares about him. And there's that moment of just, Arnie, I don't like the car. Can you get rid of the car? He becomes antagonistic. And instead of being like, you have the perfect relationship in the palm of your hand, would you be willing to sacrifice something for this? You could sell this car off and get any other car you want. But the car is actually what he cares about. And like that kind of whole realization with all the moments with her really was where it hit home for me of just I want to say now I would be more relieved that my family was okay. Yes, I'd be mad and angry. I like shit of mine was stolen, but I want to believe that I'd be more like, okay with, but at least they didn't harm my family. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's kind of one of those uncomfortable things that this movie brought out of me that I wasn't ready for it to bring out of me. And I don't know if the book does it just as good of a job or not of that aspect. I'd say it does. Yeah, Yeah, it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was just another theme I kind of wanted to bring up too, going back a little bit to like addiction and not just addiction, but like being in love with stuff, being in love with something that isn't a person, like not even a pet, just like something you own. <laughs> like an inanimate yeah. object. Well, I guess Chris yeah. is not inanimate, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that thing certainly <laughs> is present throughout a lot of stories, again, about cursed objects, is that weird possessiveness, whether yeah. it's something as obvious in pop culture for it as Lord of the Rings and the ring and Gollum and all that stuff. What is it? Hellraiser 2 or 3, where it's the art dealer that like wants to own own the demonic yeah. killer or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, all these movies about the possessiveness of whatever this item is, you know, and just not letting go. That's clearly evil and is going to kill them. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> So yeah, to get into the production of this movie a little bit, this was definitely at a time where Stephen King was at a point in his career where studios were approaching him to secure movie rights for stuff that wasn't even published yet, which that still happens to this day. You hear every once in a while about manuscripts that get optioned. That's what happened with Jurassic Park. Yeah, exactly. actually published the book yet. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Pays to be friends with Spielberg, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Crichton was just like buds with him before and it was like, oh, I got this idea about this dinosaur park cool hit me up what is this and then it went on to be like one of the best books ever made one of the best movies ever made okay yeah right i know (laughs) a recent example i can think of is jeff vandermeer who wrote the southern reach trilogy the first book annihilation got optioned before it was even published and alex garland (laughs) literally like read the manuscript one time and was like cool i got it and then just kind of wrote the script from there which is why the movie movie is a little bit different from the novel in a lot of ways because it wasn't even a finished product at the time. So they kind of both diverged in their own ways. And so this was kind of the same deal. Richard Kobritz, he already had a relationship with Stephen King because he produced Salem's Lot. Mm. He actually did the TV miniseries with Toby Hooper. And scared so many children in the process with that window scene. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He approached King and just kind of said, what else have you got? You know, like, what are you working on? Give me something. He was handed the manuscripts for Christine and Cujo. Kubrick's ultimately was more intrigued by the whole idea of the all-consuming obsession with American car culture than the one about the rabid dog. Yeah. Which, weirdly enough, Cujo in the book is also kind of a haunted object in a weird way because it's implied that, like, he's also possessed by the spirit of a killer. Sure, whatever. (laughs) And we'll get to, like, Christine appearing in other things, but, like, right here, like, one of the appearances, I think it was in Cat's Eye. Sure. Wasn't that a Stephen King, like, horror anthology movie? Yep. There's a part where, like, 
like the main character, which is a cat, is being chased by Cujo, and then they are almost hit by Christine. Yeah. And Christine like stops last minute. You can kind of see an Arnie like person behind the wheel. It's just like kind of a cameo. I swear Stephen King was the first cinematic universe. Oh, he totally. has his whole thing in the books, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's all interconnected, too, which is great. Yeah. Which, weirdly enough, book and movie, I guess, well, I don't know about the movie. The movie's never really explicit. The book explicitly takes place in Pennsylvania, and uh, the movie definitely is fucking California. It's yeah, not it's- at all Pennsylvania. <laughs> but it's it's one of the weird examples of a Stephen King in-universe, you know, story that does not take place in Maine. And I was yeah. totally thinking in my head, oh yeah, sure, they shot this in California, whatever, but surely the story takes place in Maine. And then when I was finally checking out the book in preparation for this, because I had never read the book until now. I've been working my way through all of Stephen King's stuff little by little over the last several years but i was fully expecting it to be set in maine anyway cobritz optioned christine he specifically wanted carpenter after they had already worked on someone's watching me which is a tv movie that carpenter put out in 78 the same year as halloween at this time carpenter was developing stephen king's Firestarter as well and he initially turned down christine now what changed is the thing flopped you know the thing obviously now is this beloved object in hindsight but at the time it was a huge flop financially critics hated it general audiences didn't like it because it was just too gory too much audience you can't see but i'm shaking my head in yeah. disgust. critics were literally calling <laughs> the thing pornographic oh do not take your family and your kids to go see it it's that violent Jeez. which is one of those hindsight things that i've joked about with stranger things and why that show doesn't quite work for me in some instances because yeah. the kids have a poster for the thing hanging up in their little like basement hangout area no kid would have seen that movie right they wouldn't have a poster <laughs> for the thing up yeah anyway the thing was a huge flop so carpenter was cut loose from firestarter he then accepted christine as a rebound project despite not really being passionate about the story and not really Mm -hmm. finding it to be that terribly scary it was a good blank slate for him to work on and ultimately to i guess put the button on it right here that's i think why this movie is maybe still a little under regarded this is definitely one of those carpenter movies that people don't immediately go to in that whole entire 12 year span more than that hell like 16 years he had a non-stop just banger run of movies And Christine is one of the weird ones that people just don't go to that often. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is this was totally essentially just a work for hire. You know, this wasn't something that he developed. It was a story from someone else. And it's just not as Carpenter flashy as a lot of his other movies. It is definitely more toned down stylistically even his score with alan howarth is not as flashy as their score it's not as noticeable yeah you are yeah it's not as striking no it's really not because i i double featured this with big trouble in little china and big trouble in little china was top to bottom carpenter from the score to everything christine the score was a little more in the background yeah and there was a lot more it's a purposeful licensed music in it yes it's a purposeful choice because there is so much classic rock and roll in the 
the movie that is like yeah. featured in the story of the movie. Is that an aspect of Christine in the book as well? She's yes. always playing like weird oldies on the radio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. she always she switches over to the classic oldies radio classic, station. Yeah. And characters are like, what is this garbage? Turn this off, right? I'm guessing the LaBelle brother, that's his favorite music or something bullshit in the book. Well, I mean, you know how all Stephen <laughs> King stuff is. It's so 50s nostalgic. Uh-huh. So much yeah. Stephen King stuff yeah. is wrapped up in 50s nostalgia. Ultimately, like, I think this is a really underrated Carpenter movie, just from the standpoint that I think he kind of directs the hell out of it. It's good, man. It is good. Yeah, I I think he still directs the hell out of it from a technical standpoint. It is a very well executed movie. It is just not as Carpenter TM as his other stuff happens to be. Yeah, but there's so much of his influence on it, though, because while the music is a little less him. Everything else to me felt Carpenter, like from the the way the dialogue was delivered, the way the shots were framed, anytime the car was stalking anyone, which it didn't actually stalk people as much as I thought it would in this movie. But when it does, it's pretty memorable. Yeah. And again, it really feels like Michael Myers, except just replace Michael Myers with a car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I feel like he's always so good at directing actors. And I feel like the actors could have taken this as so goofy and not really given it their all. But I feel like the actors were like, this fucking car is stalking me, you know? I feel like the actors really did a great job. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, Keith Gordon is Arnie. Like, yeah. that whole monologue he has when it's just him and his friend riding in the car and Arnie's already kind of gone over the edge. He gives that whole monologue, what is love? Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you a little something about love, Dennis. It has voracious appetite. It eats everything. Friendship. Family. It kills me how much it eats. But I'll tell you something else. You feed it right, and it can be a beautiful thing, and that's what we have. You know, when someone believes in you, man, you can do anything, any fucking thing in the entire universe. And when you believe right back in that someone, then watch out, world, because nobody can stop you. Then nobody, ever. And you feel this way about Lee. (laughs) What? Fuck no. Talking about Christine, man. No shitter ever came between me and Christine. That monologue, I actually went back and rewatched two or three times. It gave me chills. This person is clearly possessed now, clearly evil. And this is such like a badass horror villain type monologue right up there for me with the monologue from Event Horizon of (laughs) where we're going. You don't need eyes to see. I feel like that monologue and this one are like two of my favorite horror movie monologues ever. But yeah, like and to the point where I'm guessing a lot of even those monologues were like in the original book. There's just something so Carpenter about those lines deliveries too yeah sure it felt like loomis describing michael myers yeah, the shape in the original halloween yeah. the way he was yeah. delivering that you could just feel the evil yeah. <laughs> coming out of him as far as the script goes carpenter brought in bill phillips to write it which i looked his stuff up he had done a lot of tv movies did a lot of brian dennehy as a retired cop kind of movies for tv <laughs> but he's the one that adapted the manuscript Carpenter also brought in Roy Arbogast, who was the special effects supervisor he worked with on Escape from New York and The Thing. He also had done Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws 2, Return of the Jedi. Like, he did Return of the Jedi the same year that he did this movie. Wow. Filming began in April 
which the book came out a week later. You know, wow. that's how close these two things were. They shot in L.A., in Santa Clarita, and South Pasadena, which is the same exact neighborhood that Carpenter shot Halloween in. So Arnie's house is right around the corner from Laurie Strode's house. I knew it. Yeah. Yes, because like that neighborhood was like, this looks uh, exactly like the street yep. from Halloween. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's also like the same neighborhood from like Father of the Bride. <laughs> yeah, Back to the Future. Yeah. When we were in L.A. recently, I did think about doing one of those walking, driving tours because you can go to that neighborhood and there's mm-hmm. like a map of 80 movie yeah. locations. So cool. It's all right there and you can just drive around. I got to say, since we're talking about that neighborhood, Arnie's house, the way the whole lawn is done and like the front of the house, kind of rad, like with all the full foliage and, and the, plants. The lawn. Yeah. 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 For a second, I was the like, okay, yeah, Arnie, you can't really cramp their style. They did. Your parents did a great job on their lawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once you pull in that driveway, it feels like you're kind of like in a forest. Yeah. Enclosed. Yeah. It was really yeah. neat. Yeah. Yeah. Darnell's shop was an old factory. Half of it they dressed to appear as the garage, and the other half was actually used as a garage where they did all the repairs and maintenance on all the different Christine versions for this movie. Stunt cars, yeah. And then Mm -hmm. speaking of the cars, 15% of the total budget went toward cars. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That was one thing I think I was afraid of, too, going into watching it was they did not cheap on the cars, like making sure she had every iteration of herself from the junker to pristine to ripped to shreds and on fire. And it's like, okay. Let's say they light her on fire. She jams herself into an alleyway. My favorite Christine. And, you know, it's kind of a little tongue in cheek, but in the climax, when she does that initial crash in the front and her front looks kind of like a mouth. It looks like teeth. Yeah, it looks like a teeth and a mouth, like a monster's mouth. That is one part of Christine. That kind of was my Mandela effect. For some reason, I got in my head that I'd seen a part of this when I was a little kid. That there was a part where Christine literally almost quote unquote ate a person by like having oh. a mouth and like crashing into somebody. Because yeah. when the mouth came, I thought like like I was waiting for Harry Dean Stan yeah. to walk in and then him get murdered that <laughs> yeah. way. But then she repairs herself one more time. So like, oh, I guess that part doesn't end. You're thinking of another Stephen King haunted object classic, The Mangler. Is it The Mangler? Uh, it might have <laughs> been The Mangler. Oh, Mangler. Oh yeah, God. yeah. The production put out wanted ads across all of California for the 58 Plymouth Fury, and there were only ever 5,303 ever produced. Oh, wow. And they killed 130 of them for this yeah. movie. Uh, close. Uh, they were only ever produced in sandstone white with buckskin beige interior and anodized gold trim. I was going to say, because that color they had in the beginning was ugly. Oh, my God. Yeah. Sandstone sounds about right. All <laughs> yeah. of the other ones that you see on the production line, yeah. those are all actually the only color scheme that this car was ever okay. offered in. And they even say in the book that Christine was a custom red That's right. you know, paint mm-hmm. job. But in reality, this was the only color that they were ever offered in. They also had this goofy torque flight transmission, which was push buttons on the dash oh. to switch gears. Oh. <laughs> they constantly had problems with that during production as well, just having to figure out this weird system that nobody uses anymore and try to fix it. They blacked out the windows on a couple of different models just to give it that evil blacked out effect mm-hmm. where you couldn't see the stunt driver. Ultimately, they purchased 24 Furies and they kind of cobbled together and Frankensteined 17 complete models. 
They also mm. used an older model called a Savoy and a Belvedere, which they modified in various ways to resemble the Fury, which added like another seven vehicles total to the overall count. So they had 24 cars total wow. for this production that they used in various ways. But still, you can't really like fuck up a shot because like your supply is limited there. Correct. Yeah. Everything yeah. had to be very planned out and very specific. And like I said earlier, car heads are very, they love to nitpick this movie and find all the weird details that are right and that are wrong or oh in this shot it's a Belvedere and in this shot it's a Savoy and this is not how the mm-hmm. Fury actually was or whatever guess what even in the book Stephen King got a ton of details wrong about the Fury so it's all moot it doesn't fucking matter yeah, <laughs> none of it, it matters he was on so much cocaine at the time yeah <laughs> he made a book about a car that's demonic successful yeah and there was no Google you couldn't be like what do the taillights look like you know yeah. you'd have to go get a book about it or ask a car guy and then that's your whole afternoon so so this was height of Stephen King cocaine era writing I'm guessing well like yeah. if he wrote it around Cujo he says he doesn't remember writing Cujo yeah he absolutely does not remember <laughs> writing Cujo that reminds me of David Bowie not remembering writing uh, Station to Station which is like my favorite David <laughs> Bowie album of his entire yeah. discography peppers milk and cocaine baby <laughs> yeah oh god yeah. the peppers and milk Ugh. for the regeneration <laughs> scenes they made molds of different parts of the vehicle and then fabricated them out of rubber and plastic so they would actually so like cool. pull and bend easier. Yeah, because they'd be like, you know, oh, it was yeah. so cool. The scene where she's ramming herself into that narrow alley and just crunching up all the sides, all of the sides of that model are plastic. Yeah. So oh. they made one vehicle where they completely took out the entire engine assembly and they replaced it all with hydraulic pistons. So there's all these pistons inside that are attached to all the front parts of the car and the side parts of the car. And they literally are yanking and pulling and bending all of the car inward. Whoa. And then they just reverse the film so that it looks like it's blah, like going back into place. God. Yeah, I could tell that part was being played in reverse. Yeah. But it's still fucking cool. It's super we cool. We specifically talked about that. My husband and I were like, clearly this is in reverse, but how did they do it the front way? Because yeah. that's still really fucking cool. Yeah. They literally attached hydraulic pistons to those parts of the car and just like pulled it inward. God, all the things VFX has to come up for for just like one shot in movies is ridiculous. Yeah. Even lower budget movies. It's insane to me. Honestly, that part where like Artie goes like, okay, show me. And he like backs up and that card rebuilds itself. That part's so sexual. He says it's so sexual. Yeah, Uh show me. It's like a strip tease. And the soundtrack instantly goes to like a full-blown saxophone in the background. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. Okay. Show me.
I honestly got chills at that scene, but like it's a striptease scene, right? The car is performing for him. Everything about it felt like I'm not supposed to be watching this, which was good. I know that's what they were going for. <laughs> yeah. It felt like, oh yeah. no, I'm not supposed to be here. Yep. It really feels like that's where he finally just falls in love with Christine. Yes. Yeah. Where he's now in love with her. Yeah. I like how we're just saying her. <laughs> like yeah. It's just a fucking car, yeah. a demon car. <laughs> All the vehicles in the movie ultimately were sold for scrap. After the production ended. For scrap? Uh-huh. They basically destroyed all of them. Wow, I'm shocked. I'm even like a car guy, but I feel like I just... Yeah, yeah. That's a waste. One vehicle was saved and restored and bought by a car collector in Pensacola named Bill Gibson for $167,000. And then the second one that was also saved and restored was just auctioned off in January of 2020. So there are two complete stage production used Christine cars that are out there tons of people have done recreations yeah i've seen a lot of the recreations yeah but these are the two that are actually screen used other little details the name christine weirdly enough and this is just wild because we just got done covering all this is named after christine forrest george romero's wife oh this was after they had just got done doing creep show Yeah, Stephen King, like, got to be good buds with Romero and his wife. And yeah, Christine is totally just named after her. Release date for the movie was December 9th. Imagine this movie coming out in Christmas. This is not a Christmas movie. (laughs) And what's wild is, like I said, the book takes place from summer of the beginning of that school year all the way through to, like, New Year, essentially. Dennis is laid up in the hospital through Thanksgiving. There's that scene where Arnie comes to visit him. There's all the snow Christmas holiday scene stuff, right? (laughs) Does this count as a Thanksgiving horror movie, then? I guess it technically does, yeah. Yeah. Aaron and I joke about that because there's really no Thanksgiving horror movies out there. I was just in a meeting today where we literally had that conversation. I was like, it's always just cannibalism. Why can't anyone think of anything better? Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like despite there not being any Christmas anything related stuff in the movie, they still put this out in December, which is just a weird time to put it out. It's really weird. Gremlins was 84. And did Gremlins come out in December? I can't remember. I, I think Gremlins came out like in the middle of summer, weirdly enough. Really? But. Ultimately, this movie grossed $21 million domestically on a $10 million budget. And I guess for contrast, what's wild is the thing which was considered to be such a flop, that movie had a $15 million budget and only grossed 19.4. So, oh, okay. eh, yeah, like yeah. this movie did a little bit better. It wasn't gangbusters better, but it was enough of a rebound that yeah. Carpenter was kind of able to get back in the game because the thing being a flop the way it was, he apparently had a rough time trying to get work again. Oh, geez. So this was a good rebound that got him back. And then obviously right after this, we get Starman and we go right into Big Trouble in Little China and Prince of Darkness and all of that. One more thing I want to ask you guys before we get into the casting. And this goes back to really two things, actually, comparing the book and the movie. In the movie, it's just George LeBay. The car killed his brother and his brother's family. He, he's getting rid of it. He's leaving town. And that's it. See the things with the back brace. And in the book, yeah. it's two brothers and it's they're brother. flipped. And the evil brother was the one wearing the back brace. Yes. He's the one that sold the car and everything. Yeah. He's the one that sold the car to the point where, like, as Arnie is becoming 
more corrupted by Christine, he's starting to adopt the mannerisms yeah. of the LeBay. Like the back thing and Yeah, he's putting he's wearing the back brace and yeah. everything. Constantly calling everybody shitters. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm glad they still kept that aspect in the movie. They made it more like, oh, this is just the thing that Arnie and Dennis do as friends together, yeah. like mm-hmm. calling everyone shitters. But like I'm glad they made that change. Does it work in the book at all? Is really what I ultimately want to ask you guys. Then the second question was, did Stephen King like this adaptation? Because you know how he is sometimes with movie adaptations. I personally preferred the two brothers in the book. The way it worked in the book came off way creepier, way more unsettling. And we see the brother kill himself in the book. He was still alive. Yeah, because from what I read from the plot synopsis, I made it sound like Christine is not an entity unto itself. It's literally just a LeBay spirit in the car, basically. And then trying to like take over Arnie and rebirth itself. Yeah. Kind of like how there's some hints that the killer from the dead zone, his spirit takes over Cujo and that's why Cujo is like Mm -hmm. evil. Correct. That is very much how it's played in the book. You know, you know, something's kind of already up with the car to a degree. There is some history there that you're not quite getting. But once the car is away from him, he very much like (laughs) his husk just kind of gives up and he dies and his spirit kind of attaches to the car like the one thing he cared about i I prefer the book i think you know that that is one aspect that i wish the movie had maybe stuck with a little bit more in that it's one of those things where his brother and there's a sister character as well that's not really present Mm -hmm. in the book they mention her it's the whole idea that his family also saw him transform into a completely different person and he kind of became this awful evil twisted person who cared more about this car than he did his own family like they also saw this change couldn't do anything about it and it kind of mirrors what Arnie is going through now. The brother, George, that's at the funeral and Dennis tracks him down later to talk to him. Tell me like what actually happened to your brother. You know, he very much has the like, it's happening again, isn't it? That kind of attitude. And that realization, that's the thing. When he delivers in the book, what happened to the little girl and things, it's terrifying you have no idea i think in the movie it was just told in so much of a almost like gossipy way like oh this is what happened to my brother and yeah this is what (laughs) happened to his kid yeah the actor who played george labelle is just like oh well it's not my problem yeah (laughs) and in the book it's like oh shit again hearing about the little girl and the hamburger that part when you find out what really happened it's just like so dark dennis tells him that lee almost choked in the car and he's like wait on a hamburger and it's like oh god it's happening again you know yeah it's really creepy the two things that sound like they were better that were in the book were you have that little bit of generational horror that's only Mm -hmm. just glossed over before it really is just purely Arnie's focus and then again that imagery you guys brought up earlier it seems like any of the people that the car has killed are somehow still attached to the car because people are seeing their dead bodies and smelling their rotting corpses and everything which is as a whole layer of terror creepy imagery yeah just like the first season of like American Horror Story where if you die in the house you'll never leave your spirit is there forever you know yeah the book very much plays that aspect up too and the spirits in the car taunting people and taunting Arnie specifically yeah and I feel like that would have been some at least one or two really good jump scares in this movie if they did that yeah 
Definitely, it could have been. But uh, then the second question, again, is did Stephen King like this adaptation? Was he okay with what Carpenter did? From everything I've seen and heard, yeah. This is one of those that he's not really greenlit anybody to do a remake of until just now. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is just he is kind of happy with it. It came Mm. out well. It's the only time he ever got to work with Carpenter specifically. And, you know, I mean, it's pretty intact. It's not like they made massive derivations from the source material like Kubrick's version of The Shining, for instance, which (laughs) King has notoriously always been like, I hate it, you know? Cool. Yeah. All right. Let's let's move on to the cast. then. Just like anything else, the studio had a bunch of popular actors that they had in mind for the leads of this. And Carpenter, of course, turned all of them down (laughs) in favor of Uh, casting some relative unknowns, right? That seems to be the case with most productions where directors really kind of want people who are new and fresh that you don't have an attachment to, or they are 100% selling the movie off the back of that actor and their persona. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, cough, cough, Derek and I were just joking about that with all this HBO and Warner and all the Discovery shit that's happening right now like the only reason why that rock black adam movie is happening is because of the rock being attached to it you know exactly yeah Yeah. so this is kind of one of those things where yeah carpenter wanted kevin bacon for arnie that was the only named person he wanted for arnie and honestly i could see kevin bacon doing this i can't you can't kevin bacon is already so charismatic and handsome at this time yeah you could buy him as smooth cool arnie but you would never buy him as dorky arnie yeah i i'm thinking of smooth arnie not yeah yeah. not nerd but i could see that kevin bacon like manic psychotic energy too yes yes you can see that side of it for sure and like Kevin Bacon is, when he would be in dorky Arnie mode, it would be way too much of a she's all that kind of thing, where it's like, oh, take off your glasses and let your hair down, now all of a sudden she's hot. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You wouldn't quite buy it with Kevin Bacon being the nerdy kid, but Keith Gordon is a good balance. He does a great transformation in this movie. Where, yeah, when he has his hair all greased up and he's got his glasses, Mm. you buy like, oh, this kid's a fucking dork. Yeah. Nerd. But then when he makes that turn and has his transformation, it's not like all of a sudden he grows six inches taller and gets fucking buff and in good shape and like gets more handsome. But it's just the basic things like, oh, you dropped your glasses. You're styling your hair different. You're wearing clothes that properly fit. Your posture is better. And, And again, going back to the whole theme of puberty and how awkward that is Mm -hmm. and how that's something that we all have to deal with and that transformation that we all have out of our ugly duckling stages right shelby you mentioned you had bad acne i had terrible acne i had yeah, awful I acne growing up really bad acne. and it's one of those yeah. things where like i look back at my school photos from middle school and i look awful and then all of a sudden it all cleared up it all cleared up kind of mm-hmm. overnight you know and a lot of it was just hitting puberty and just being in that weird place where you know you're going through that weird transformation and things are just kind of out of your control but the stuff that is in his control you know a lot of it is that nice guy nice girl tm kind of stuff of 
take a shower regularly, you know, take care of yourself. That's not hard. You don't have to be like wearing cool clothes or you don't have to be good looking, but like take care of yourself. That's basic stuff. Mm -hmm. And Arnie seems to be taking better care of himself, you know, in that part of the movie. So you buy the transformation in a more organic way with Keith Gordon, for sure. Y'all brought up the Stephen King, like 1950s nostalgia. When he's cool, Arnie, at least when you first see him, like when he shows up at the football game, he looks like a 50s greaser kind of. Totally, totally. (laughs) Yeah, the leather vest later on in the movie is definitely the most, mm, that's a dated piece of clothing right there, but sure, you're becoming more of a 50s greaser, definitely. But yeah, Keith Gordon was in Jaws 2 and Brian De Palma's home movies. I know Jaws Two isn't a good movie per se, but is it a fun movie? It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. I like a lot of the Jaws sequels, to be honest. They're fun. There's a lot of people who do, and yeah. I've never really seen any of them. Uh, I kind of am curious. Jaws 3D is the best. It's ridiculous. It's the one that takes place at like SeaWorld. It's yep. great. Yeah. It's great. And Jaws 4 introduces the idea that a voodoo curse is what's driving <laughs> the shark to seek revenge on yeah. the Brody family, and Michael Caine is in it. It's bananas. Yeah. I need to watch these movies, though. (laughs) But yeah, Keith Gordon was in a Brian De Palma movie prior to this. He was in all that jazz prior to this, um, which, Jesus Christ, that's such a good fucking movie. Blank Check is doing a, or they did a Fosse series just recently. I just rewatched that, Uh. and God, that movie's good. But then he, like, goes back to De Palma, Dressed to Kill, and Legend of Billie Jean. He's in Back to School. He's in this movie called Static, which is... Mark Romanek's first movie. Mark Romanek is one of the end-all, be-all greatest music video directors of all huh. time. Like, just look up his shit. That's where I heard the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he did everything from, like, Michael Jackson's Scream, which was one of the biggest, most expensive music videos ever, to yeah. Nine Inch Nails' is Closer, to Jay-Z's 99 oh, wow. Problems. Like, he did all oh kinds God. of insane music videos. So, yeah, Keith Gordon's in his first weird sci-fi movie. Scott Bayo was the studio choice which that could have been kind of weird john cusack also auditioned supposedly allegedly keith gordon told alexander paul that he was nervous about their makeout scene and that he felt they needed to practice beforehand oh what a goof oh come on man but what's interesting is he was 21 when they shot this movie and he is directing the chocolate war in 88 five years later and that's what he does now he is not really been in a whole lot of movies at all since the 80s he directed a midnight clear he did this i'm curious to watch it because i've not seen it but he did an adaptation of vonnegut's mother night in the 90s that had nick nolte john goodman kirsten dunst david strathairn and alan arkin and cheryl lee from twin peaks in it wow so i'm very interested in checking that out he directed Waking the Dead, which is pretty interesting. That's Jennifer Connelly and Billy Crudup, The Singing Detective. And then he's done shit tons of TV. He's directed episodes of House, The Killing, Dexter, The Strain, The Leftovers, Better Call Saul, it just ended, Fargo, oh, Legion, wow. Homeland. And he's done a ton of TV since then. So it's interesting that he made that pivot into directing. Because then we get to John Stockwell, who played Dennis. Before this, he was in Eddie and the Cruisers. He would go on to be in Albert Pune's Radioactive Dreams, North and South, which was like a big Civil War TV event thing. He's most well known for playing Cougar in Top Gun, but he also made the pivot into directing 
1987. So he pivoted into oh. directing before Keith Gordon did, <laughs> uh, wow. with a movie called Undercover. And then he got back into directing in the 2000s. He did Crazy Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Blue Crush. Oh, my God. Into the Blue. <laughs> Turistas. He did all these movies that like, I totally remember wow. from the aughts. And I like had no yeah. idea that he directed those. I forgot Blue Crush and Into the Blue. Yeah. Those movies. <laughs> yeah. The like hot people in bathing suits hot movies. People, yeah, yeah exactly. Hot people in bathing suits mm-hmm. movies. Right when I was hitting puberty. Yep. 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 <laughs> but it seems like lately he has been kind of in the red box trap directing stuff like in the blood and countdown and kickboxer vengeance and armed response like he's doing a lot of these red box action movies now but whatever you know as long as it's not the ones that are funded by weird dirty russian arms money and have complicated (laughs) people and i'm like gina carano then whatever yeah funny enough uh armed response it has Anne hache and wesley snipes starring in it it also has wwe's seth rollins and it was a collaboration (laughs) with wwe studios yes that is something that i noticed with a lot of these it seems like he is specifically directing the red box movies that wwe is involved in he is somehow in their stable now the most important part it has a whopping zero percent on rotten tomatoes so yeah it's interesting that both of these young guys are in this movie and within five years they both pivot into directing and i wonder how much of an influence carpenter might have been on that decision working with someone like that yeah i'm very curious did both of those guys really kind of take to Carpenter? Because I've heard Carpenter speak pretty highly of this cast and how much he enjoyed working with them. So maybe a lot of that was they just like all got along and he really kind of pushed them into like, hey, maybe like check this out. Yeah. Uh, 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 Alexander Paul plays Lee. She was in American Nightmare, which is kind of an interesting TV thriller. American Flyers, Hal Ashby's Eight Million Ways to Die, the Dragnet movie, some movie called Millions, which John Stockwell was also in with her as well. She's in Cuffs. She was in a lot of Baywatch. She was in like a hundred episodes of Baywatch and just a lot of TV movies. Like the vast majority of her credits are just these either Lifetime movies or A&E movies stuff like that which there's apparently like a massive market in that that i've just oh, underestimated sure. this entire yeah time. i don't have cable i don't watch cable yeah lifetime movies are starting to cast c-list b-list famous tv actors yeah. from the 90s and 80s as like their big name get the lifetime movies especially are almost self-aware nowadays they know they have become a meme yeah. and they just lean heavy into it so people love eat that shit up yeah yeah i was listening to some podcast it might have been movie crypt or something where they had on the director of anything for jackson which was a recent horror movie that ended up on shutter and he was like oh yeah no i've directed over 50 films and they're like what the (laughs) fuck and he was like yeah i directed 50 movies in the past three years they are all hallmark movies they're all hallmark and lifetime movies every one of them so for the role of lee brooke shields was the studio choice and i guess she would have been coming off of blue lagoon maybe yeah blue lagoon that's what i was thinking yeah And uh, funny enough, Alexander Paul is one of these actresses that has an identical twin. (laughs) Evil twins. Yeah, evil twins. Exactly. They pulled a prank where they swapped during a scene. So she snuck her twin onto set. Her twin is named Caroline. That's why Caroline Paul is uncredited on Wikipedia for for the same character. Okay. So went to wardrobe and makeup, got completely done up exactly the same. Caroline went and filmed the scene with the bulldozer. 
bulldozer. So when you see her foot oh, on the clutch and everything, that's her. <laughs> While they were filming it, Alexandra stormed onto set, acting fake angry and demanding to know why did Carpenter fire her and replace her without telling her. <laughs> and of course, he was like, the fuck? Right? Like, just son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, apparently, he like got a kick out of it. But yeah, there are shots in the final film where it's the sister and that's why she's listed <laughs> as uncredited in that way. That's really funny. Robert Prosky plays Darnell, which I'm discovering more and more. That dude is one of my favorite character actors, long time, long time theater actor. And his movie debut is Michael Mann's thief, which is a oh. fucking scorcher of a movie. And he is so good in that movie as the dirty old guy who's giving him all the jobs. Like, yeah, I need you to go rob this bank for me. There's scenes where he's acting all like happy grandpa, like, oh, I'm just the old guy. Like, oh, I'm here. I'm the neighbor guy. I'm just giving everybody jobs. And he switches from that to like hanging James Conn upside down over a vat of acid. Like, I'm going to kill your entire fucking family. Oh, you hear me? Like, oh, <laughs> kind of reminds me of uh, evil grandpa from um, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, but he's also in Michael Mann's <laughs> The Keep. He was in The Natural. He was on Hill Street Blues for a long time. That's my mom the other night. We're watching it. was like, oh, that's the guy from Hill Street Blues. <laughs> broadcast news he's in gremlins 2 the new batch yep the new he's batch the svengoolie kind of guy oh that's right yeah he's in hoffa last action hero rudy mrs doubtfire dead man walking death to smoochie he's been in a ton of stuff wow he was fantastic as darnell yeah yeah he's great and I'm, it's yeah. interesting too so a subplot with darnell that is big in the book that make it into the movie while we're on that character you find out that he's definitely Definitely kind of mobbed up a little bit and he's into like smuggling. So you get the idea that he like occasionally steals cars and he runs alcohol and firearms and stuff over the border. Arnie's dad and Dennis's dad are both like, uh, you maybe need to not hang around there. Don't do yeah. any favors for him. Don't ever like. But does he does he also still take the mentorship route a little bit like he does in the a movie? A little bit. Yeah. yeah. Like it kind of is the same thing where at first he really doesn't like Arnie, but he kind of takes shine to him a little bit because he sees, oh, you're actually serious. You're fixing up this car for real. Yeah, sure. Like I'll actually get you to do little jobs for me here and there. But then it escalates to like, oh, now Arnie is driving marijuana in a hidden compartment in his car <laughs> yeah. across state lines and everything. I mean, yeah, the movie does hint that he's doing odd jobs yes. for him, but never like goes to that full to the route, yeah. like, route of like running drugs. And Dennis's dad fully knows about it because he was Darnell's accountant for a while and he kind of backed out once it became obvious. Oh, you're asking me to like cook your books and do favors for you. No, I'm bouncing. Yeah. There's a weird moment in the book where the feds arrest Darnell for tax evasion and they bust Arnie crossing the border in Darnell's car That's with the right. false panel and he's hauling back unstamped cigarettes or something. It was. Oh my God. And so there's this whole subplot with Arnie and his parents and everything else where Arnie goes to jail. Arnie gets arrested, goes <laughs> to jail yeah. and they basically are like, dude, you're 17. You have to rat out this older guy. He does not care about you. You have 
have to rat on him. Give us everything you know, or your future is ruined. You're not going to college. You are done. And he just stalls him and just says, nah, fuck you coppers. I'm not giving you anything. You're just a bunch of shitters. You're just trying to keep me down. You know, he like his LeBay is kind of coming out. Yeah. They finally like let him off because he's a minor. There's this whole thing with his parents where it's not just, oh, your obsession with this car is driving us crazy. And what about your future? Yeah, they're like stakes. They're yeah. actual stakes. Then it really becomes, you can't go to college now. You're fucked. You can't get a job now, kid. You've permanently mm-hmm. messed up at this point. So there's a whole subplot with that in the story as well too and it becomes this whole big thing because it's not just oh our son is a little bit of a firebrand it's like oh your kid just got arrested for smuggling narcotics well, you know I'm guessing Darnell dies in the book too and makes that death even more like yeah. okay this is weird oh well that's <laughs> why because Christine definitely is like oh you mess with my boy yeah I'm coming for yeah. you you know yeah he's not yeah. just kind of a kindly curmudgeon who's just being too nosy or anything yeah. like there's reasons yeah, yeah. Well, if we want to talk like horror scenes besides the stalking scene that whole scene where the car charred to bits rolls in by itself into the garage and oh, it's just darnell so and darnell calls and is like hey did the boy take my car and he's like yeah he's out delivering yeah and then he hangs up the phone you realize no one's behind the wheel oh. that scene kind of also takes place in the book yeah where the car rolls in kind of destroyed and he realizes arnie never gets out of the car yeah and that's where he kind of keeps in his back pocket i know there's something weird with this car and that's my like ace in the hole in case this kid tries to rat on me yeah so there's like this whole weird subplot with darnell i'm kind of glad they dropped that though from the movie because that would have been too much it would have been muddy all the smuggling stuff yes it would have been muddy and complicated and the other thing is too it's just like any other stephen king book every side character has a backstory you find out every detail about every side character and everything else yeah they do trimming down a lot of that for a movie always makes sense with stephen king adaptations but i do kind of wish that they had kept his death scene in there because his death is way more gnarly in the book. I mentioned Robert's Blossom already. The guy that plays George LeBay. He was in Slaughterhouse-Five. He was in Deranged, which I mentioned earlier. The Great Gatsby, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Escape from Alcatraz, Resurrection, Vision Quest, The Last Temptation of Christ, Always, Home Alone, which that's where most people are going to know him from. He's the old shovel man from Home Alone. old shovel man, yeah. And then he's in Doc Hollywood and Quick and the Dead. In fact, that was when we were watching, my husband was like, is that the man from Home Alone? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yep. Yep. And we looked at it, which was like, oh my God, it's the guy from Home Alone. And it's wild too, because looking at his CV, it's like, dude, you worked with John Carpenter. You worked with Spielberg multiple times. You worked with Scorsese. Yeah. You worked with Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. The amount of big name directors he worked with is kind of wild. Yeah. I think that's a good transition to a man who doesn't need an introduction. Yeah. As a cast member, <laughs> as talking about someone who has worked with everybody. Oh, seriously. One of my all time favorites. Harry yeah. Dean Stanton. The fucking man. Man. Yeah. The fucking man. Dude does not need an introduction, but no. like, man, I love that up to his death, which was fairly recently back in 2017, he had appeared in like, Twin Peaks back in the 90s all the way to the reboot. But even before Twin Peaks in the 90s, he had done a million things. He had an entire actor's career worth of work in just TV and Westerns back in the day before he got into any of the movie stuff. He had an entire massive, huge career doing that before everything else. 
Dude, and he, f- it felt like in this movie, this was just an easy breezy job oh, for totally. him. It seemed like it, right? He yeah. still delivered. Yeah. He's such a good actor that he doesn't mm-hmm. even need to yeah. try and he yep. still comes off across as good. He's got so much presence and he's just such an he odd looking guy that yes. like you totally buy him and whatever he's in. Yeah. But like, yeah, Alien, Godfather Part mm-hmm. 2. Escape from New York, yeah. speaking of Carpenter. Yeah. Repo Man. Fucking love Repo Pretty Man. Pretty in Pink. All these fucking <laughs> bangers. Cool Hand Luke. Wild at Heart as well. More David Lynch. Inland Empire. He's Inland in Inland Empire, Empire yeah. with David Lynch. And then weirdly enough, like he's in Avengers. He's literally in the first Avengers movie. Oh, right? that's right. Fuck, he's in the Green Mile. I'm looking at his t- like, filmography. He's yeah. also in the Green Mile. Yeah, he's yeah. also in The Last Temptation of Christ as well. He's wow. worked with everybody. One that I'll mention that I love. I love so much, and it sent me down a rabbit hole for a future episode. I love him in Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas is so fucking good. That's one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, we don't talk about non-horror on here a lot. God, I love Paris, Texas. Anyway, yeah, Harry Dean Stanton, he's the man. One of the best. Love him. As far as other bits and pieces, William Ostrander plays Buddy Ripperton. He was in Red Heat and Mulholland Drive. Again, speaking of David Lynch, more yeah. people from this crossing over into that. He's one of the people in this cast that I would have sworn was 37 playing a high schooler. Yeah. Uh, he was 23, yeah. so I mean, he's still older than high school, but that's definitely okay, like but he younger. did look much older. Yeah, he looked much older. Yeah. I think that's just everybody back then looked older. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Cage apparently auditioned for this role which that could have been interesting okay. very early Nick Cage role yeah could you imagine him getting killed off by oh a fucking God. it's probably when he was still going <laughs> yeah. to Coppola yeah. too yeah imagine him running down the highway just, ah, ah, just <laughs> freaking out interesting little small role by Kelly Preston yes the very beginning of the movie one of the other bullies is played by Stephen Tash he's the guy from the beginning of Ghostbusters that Bill Murray is doing the like weird psychic test with and shocking over oh, and over. Yeah, the, the psychic that yeah. shocking, yeah. Yep, yep. Stuart Charno is the dorky red-headed guy bully. He's in oddly enough like a lot of other horror stuff. He was just kind of your typical 80s nerd dude, but he's in Friday the 13th Part 2, Once Bitten, Freddy's Nightmares, Sleepwalkers, and just one of those weird things I always point out, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. He was in an episode oh. of that. Just again, one of those weird things like one of these days I got to commit to like actually looking through all of that stuff so yeah the cast of this is uh pretty interesting because it's definitely not your typical cast of carpenter cool adults that you want to hang out with mm-hmm. you know like if you look at something <laughs> like escape from new york yeah. and you hear stories about kurt russell harry dean stanton isaac hayes and adrian barbeau would all just go out and drink and hang out every <laughs> night in new york yes that sounds great god they right. must have gotten Hella late, that yeah. group. Yeah. Right? Are you kidding me? That is the sex right there. Yeah. <laughs> We've covered most of the differences between the book and the movie at this point. One weird detail is that Arnie and Dennis work on a construction crew over the summer, and that's where Arnie gets the money to buy the car. But that also explains how Dennis knows how to drive the bulldozer, which mm-hmm. in the book, it's a yeah. septic truck, but it's still like a big giant diesel truck. Yeah. Isn't it called Petunia? Petunia. 
as well in the yes, book. I read that like it's called Petunia. Shitter truck. Yeah, so it's girl fight between these two vehicles yeah. at the end. <laughs> Arnie definitely starts going dark a lot sooner in the book. So another difference in the book I did appreciate because the Arnie character is tragic to me, but it almost felt like he never had the chance at redemption at all in the movie, which might have been on purpose. And I don't hate that, but I, the thing I liked in the book is that after he dies, he still appears to Dennis is like everything is kind of okay now. Dennis apologizes to him for not being able to save him. I don't think there was a way you could fit that in this movie. It wouldn't have no. really worked. No, I think the ending worked perfectly for the movie, but I yeah. agree. Yeah. My only small gripe is the ending felt a little abrupt in the movie. Like the final fight was a little anticlimactic yeah. and then it just kind of they defeat it and then like it goes from that shot to like mm-hmm. Christine already like made into a cube mm-hmm. and then like Harry Dean Stan being like good job children you yeah. saved the day. Yeah. And I, yeah. I thought that was a little abrupt of an ending but otherwise I really enjoyed the movie but like mm-hmm. yeah I, I'm glad that the book at least resolves a little bit of hey that sucked but like it's not your fault appearing to him and as I guess a ghost I don't know yeah one detail that I loved about the book and the ending that I wish had been in the movie and I would love to still see it in a remake if a remake happens so like we mentioned Arnie dies off page completely him and his mom are going yeah. to tour college they are like driving in her car in the complete opposite direction and Christine killed his dad earlier already so, right? so yeah that's what I was yeah. about to say yeah, yeah. so the dad is like standing outside and he's like bye guys y'all have fun have fun checking out the college and they drive off and then all of a sudden you just hear car in the distance and then it cuts to the final confrontation Lee and Dennis are both like who's driving the car you know is it Arnie no Arnie's with his mom it can't be Arnie who is driving the car ah the car after it goes after him a few times does a handbrake 180 and just vomits out the mangled corpse of Arnie's dad that's kind of creepy that's kind of fucking creepy the car spins and just spits the dead body out of the driver's seat right at their feet and it's a great jump scare in the book Uh, yeah I do hope the remake does go a little more in the book route of the ghosts appearing Mm -hmm. and like that scene being in the final confrontation like that would have been cool yeah Yeah. Um, the other thing about the book and they kind of did it in a way like the idea that Christine might still survive yeah in the film you see the fender moving and twitching in the book it jumps forward in time and Dennis and Lee have gone their separate ways and Dennis finds out that the final member of yeah, the, the bully gang bully got killed yeah. by a car crashing through like the movie theater and, and into him he's pretty sure that Christine is like eventually hunting them all down yeah so in the movie the bullies go to the garage and trash the car in the mm-hmm. book yeah. his parents force him to keep the car parked in long term parking at the airport sure weird okay I guess that wasn't that expensive back then yeah. right now that would be like a billion dollars billions yeah. of and dollars not just that, now, yeah. but like cars get stolen from airport parking lots all the time yeah, yeah. it's a big sign saying i'm not going to be here for a while exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah the attendant that's at that airport parking lot is one of the bullies and they don't realize it when they like drive in and park uh, the car okay. so he immediately is like oh shit there's that car let's go trash it so yeah he ends up getting killed way afterward and dennis kind of puts together this whole idea of like but there's george his brother and then his sister they live out here and 
Ali is now living in Arizona. Could the car just be going like around the entire country to kill all of us? You know, because yeah. there was a moment where Arnie had been talking about driving Christine all the way out to California, blah, blah, blah. Well, because the final bully that we hear about is in California, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So he's thinking, is it finally coming for all of them? Before we wrap it up on that note, real quick, talk about the other cameos. Shelby brought up Stephen King being the first shared universe. And we've certainly talked about that. On, I think actually on the last episode you're on for taking Deborah Logan, one of my recommendations was a Stephen King novel that's heavily like built yeah. into his multiverse. Rose Matter, wasn't it? Rose yeah. Matter, yeah. So Christine appears in It. And apparently there's a part in It where the car arrives and picks up a character and it's being driven by a reanimated character that was killed previously, like in the past, I guess, by the It entity. Huh. I haven't read it, but apparently it drives him somewhere and the character gets to apologize to the person that died in the sewer. It's mentioned or shown in 11-22-63. Interesting. Oh. Okay. When like they go back in time, they're like... <laughs> it's on the grassy knoll. <laughs> no, no. It's a, but, like they go back in time and someone I think drives by it. I mentioned Cat's Eye, where it's chasing Cujo. Yeah. And then in the stand, the complete and uncut edition, as they're crossing the country, like there's still, I think, a car that's hinted that it's in better condition than the other cars. Arnie's initials are carved in the car's dashboard. And so like it's it also makes a cameo in there. Everything makes a fucking cameo in Ready Player One. Of course, it's in that. Yeah. Apparently, it makes a cameo in Sharknado 4. Sure. But yeah, yeah. like it makes cameo in Cat's Eye, It, and The Stand, and then 11, 22, 63, as far as like the shared universe of, That's which would make sense because maybe like it's one of the bells that was driving it at like yeah. continuity at the time. But yeah, it's just those little things with Stephen King's like, oh, they're so fun. They're fun. So fun. Yeah. It'd be interesting if he did one final before I retire before I die novel that like ties everything together but you could make the argument that that's just his Dark Tower series that's what I was <laughs> yeah. almost gonna say in Dark Tower he meets them yeah well and it's implied the big bad of Dark Tower is either the same entity as it or the same species as it yeah. so like yeah two other little things the detective in the book is also killed by Christine off page. There is a whole subplot with Lee and Dennis where they have a romance and that is not present in the yes. movie at all. Yeah, because it's a big point for him to mention that they're not together anymore. Yeah, they definitely like kind of fall for each other after Lee and Arnie kind of fall apart. And they both feel guilty and weird about it as well, too, which we were just talking with all of our college friends back and forth about how friendcestuous our entire group was during college. Yeah. You know, like that's yep. definitely <laughs> something that like I uh, can kind of relate some of that. Just the weirdness of am I doing wrong by my friends that used to be with this other person? Like, can we still be friends? You know, just all that guilt yeah. and kind of weirdness and awkwardness is definitely mm -hmm. there in their relationship. And they seem to know from the beginning getting like this probably ain't gonna be like a long-term permanent thing <laughs> let's just bang out our trauma bonding yeah exactly like <laughs> by the end it's like nah we didn't last at all we lasted yeah. like six months i went on to be a little league coach and now she's a teacher yeah. or whatever yeah. <laughs> so yeah that entire subplot gets excised and it's interesting because there is a deleted scene for the movie like they there's a lot of these elements that they filmed and just didn't make the cut there's like 20 minutes worth of deleted scenes for this movie wow. and there is that moment where like they make out in his car after kind of having a conversation and Arnie drives up behind them and Christine and catches them and kind of has a freak out moment of, you know, oh, I caught you. That would have been a good moment. Yeah, Ugh. it could have been interesting, especially if it didn't really go anywhere just to have that. Oh, we had feelings and like, oh, no, we can't act on that anymore now. 
because we're yeah. like found out, you know. Either way, yeah, that yeah. could have been kind of interesting in a weird way. So, all right, cool. Well, I think we have talked enough about Christine, and uh, we've talked a good bit about haunted objects, which again is going to be the theme of our season of spoop this year. Uh, Shelby. Thank you so much for coming on again. This was a lot of fun. Thank you once again. Thank you for having me back. I always love talking to you guys at length about things. Great, weird synchronicity that you had just watched this movie before anyway. (laughs) So it was kind of perfect timing. (laughs) But yeah, like, thank you so much for coming on as always. Derek mentioned in one of our last recordings that you had a little interesting cameo in a recent Batman comic, which I checked out. And like, sure enough, I came to that panel. I was like, oh, there she is. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Tell us what else you have going on. Obviously, you have your show. Yeah, I have the show. And you have your stuff at Bloody Disgusting right now. What else is going on? There's a few things going on. So I'm actually currently in the process of getting my show translated into Spanish. And it's going to be available in the Spanish-speaking market, which is very exciting. And also, I have a live show coming up with SCP Archives and the Creepy Podcast. The three of us, John Rills and Pacific Obadiah and I, are going to be doing a live show in Chicago on November 10th. Bloody Disgusting is bringing its three biggest fiction podcasts to Chicago's historic Music Box Theater on November 10th. Join three horrifying podcasters, Shelby Scott, host of Scare You to Sleep, John Grills from Creepy, and Pacific Esselbadai of the SCP Archives for two hours of terrifying tales. Head to the official Music Box Theater website to purchase tickets for one night left to live on Thursday, November 10th. And yeah, just check out Scary to Sleep. It's available everywhere. You can submit stories too. So at Scary to Sleep. Hell yeah. yeah. Generally a creepy ass show. Thank you. I try. Hard to listen to in a good way. Hard to listen to uh, at night by yourself. Like in a, in a very good way. That makes me so happy. To this day still though, the creepiest one for me was the fucking kids one. Like again, and I know we brought this up in a past episode, but something about the kids stories, <laughs> like the way you present them. Yeah. This earnest horror like really makes it more visceral to me for the some kids story so yeah and that's another thing the kids stories uh when this comes out i'll be around this time because every year i do a kids episode where the kids actually write the stories um not my kids i don't have kids they can all submit stories if you have kids have them submit a story for next year and it's so fascinating to see what children come up with for their own horror stories oh i'm sure yeah. they're yeah. hilarious and terrifying at the same time yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right cool well uh where can people find you most easily on social media? On social media, you can find the show at Scary to Sleep. You can find me at Shelby B. Scott. Same for Twitter, Instagram, both the same, literally, Shelby B. Scott or Scary to Sleep. Hell yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you so much again for coming on. As always, this was a lot of fun. That's going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres. As always, you can find us on social media at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. Download future episodes and past episodes, and like and subscribe and follow and all the things at pretty much every podcatcher imaginable, specifically 
specifically Apple Podcasts and Podbean and Podchaser and what's the other ones that are good pods? Good pod? Yeah, sure, all of them. <laughs> Spotify, uh, honestly, like I hate to admit it, but uh, Spotify Podcasts is also doing relatively well. So sure, yeah. <laughs> we've also got our Spotify Music playlist that is up as well. That is pinned on our social media pages. So check that out if you want some spooky tunes. Definitely some John Carpenter on that playlist. So yeah, good playlist to have during this season of spoop if you want some good tunes for parties and for hangout as always big thanks to my little brother jesse mansfield aka party gator for the bumps the beginning and ends of our episodes um including our season of spoop bump uh you can find his stuff on Bandcamp at party gator opossums at big clown at all the other groups that he has <laughs> so yeah check his stuff out get some music throw him a couple of bucks good stuff there and uh beyond that join us again for the rest of season of spoop we got some good guests coming up we've got some fun stuff happening and uh we've got some good plans approaching for episode 100 the rest of the year yes we are approaching episode 100 so that'll be fun time coming up derek have you got any final thoughts uh, let me uh, put on my leather jacket real fast. I'm a little more haggard. Put a, like some bags on my eyes. So yeah, uh, we were talking about love and love of stuff and objects and all that shit. Let me tell you a little something about love, Mansfield. It has a voracious appetite. It eats everything. Friendship, family. It kills me how much it eats. But I'll tell you something else. You feed it right and it can be a beautiful thing. And that's what we have. Are you talking about your wife? What? Fuck no. I'm talking about Sally, man. No shitter ever came between me and Sally. Vroom, vroom. (laughs) Vroom, vroom. (laughs) 